everyone. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 31st. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 117 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a full show for you today, but first, some of the news we've been publishing on the Electronic Intifada over the past several days. Immediately after the International Court of Justice in The Hague made a much-anticipated interim ruling that orders Israel to halt genocidal acts in Gaza, several of Israel's allies have suspended funding to the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, UNRWA following allegations that 12 of its employees were involved in the October 7th attacks led by Hamas. My colleague Maureen Murphy writes, quote, the Israeli allegations appear to be based off of confessions made by Palestinian detainees, likely under conditions of torture. Human rights experts warn that suspending aid to UNRWA at present is a violation of the 1948 Genocide Convention. UNRWA is the principal provider of humanitarian assistance and second largest employer in the Gaza Strip where two-thirds of its population of 2.3 million Palestinians are refugees. For more, read Maureen Murphy's post, Israel's Allies Accelerate Genocide by Freezing UNRWA Funds on electronicintifada.net. And we'll have more on the suspension of funds to the UN's Palestine Refugee Agency by Israel's Allies coming up later in, in the program. Meanwhile, in addition to the cutting off of vital funds to UNRWA, hundreds of Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since the International Court of Justice issued its orders last Friday to stop Israel from violating the genocide conventions, writes Maureen. The Euromed Human Rights Monitor said that in the first 48 hours following the World Court's ruling, the Israeli army killed 373 Palestinians, 345 of them civilians. The head of the World Health Organization said on Tuesday that the agency had delivered essential medical supplies to Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus after being cut off amid heavy fighting. He said once the most important referral hospital in southern Gaza, within a week, Nasser has gone from partially to minimally functional. The UN health chief added that this reflected, quote, the unwarranted and ongoing dismantling of the health system in Gaza. Ghassan Abusita, a British-Palestinian surgeon who was working in Gaza during the first weeks of the genocide, has said that Israel's systematic attacks on hospitals is aimed at making life in Gaza unlivable to force out its population, Maureen Murphy notes. Rami Abdu, the director of Euromed Human Rights Monitor, tweeted on Tuesday about reports of a gruesome discovery in northern Gaza of individuals who were blindfolded, handcuffed, and then executed. Quote, the bodies were found beneath debris and waste at Hamad bin Khalifa school. Many were wrapped in shrouds, and the shrouds were bound by the known Israeli handcuffs. According to our field researchers, the preliminary findings suggest that the school is situated near a cemetery, and these bodies might have been previously stolen by Israeli forces from the nearby graveyard and then buried at the school. The Palestinian health ministry in Gaza reported that the number of known fatalities in the Gaza Strip since October 7th has risen to more than 26,750, with more than 65,000 injured. 
That was all from Maureen R Murphy's report from Tuesday, Israel kills hundreds of Palestinians in Gaza after ICJ ruling on electronicintifada.net. Palestinians are contracting typhoid and hepatitis A after drinking contaminated water. Finding clean and safe drinking water has become nearly impossible, writes Khaloud Saleman and Salma Yassin from Gaza. Quote, the desalination plants are closed entirely or operating at extremely limited capacity due to a lack of electricity and fuel. Israel has also destroyed much of Gaza's sanitation and water infrastructure or deliberately cut off the piping in of water, the reporters write. Most of the nearly 2 million people who have been displaced in Gaza are now in the south. The lack of clean drinking water there is especially acute. For more on this story, read Dying of Thirst by Khaloud Suleiman and Salma Yassin from Gaza. And finally, in the occupied West Bank, my colleague Tamara Nassar writes that an Israeli death squad raided the Ibn Sina hospital in Jenin on Tuesday, extrajudicially assassinating three young Palestinian men. Quote, surveillance footage shows about a dozen Israeli special Ibn Sina Hospital in the northern occupied West Bank city of Jenin on Tuesday. They were dressed as Palestinian doctors, nurses, and civilian women, and were armed with rifles as they moved through the corridors, Tamara reports. One Israeli soldier pushed a patient in a wheelchair, quote, in order to gain access to the hospital's third floor, while another carried a baby bag containing weapons, stated the Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitor. There on the third floor, the Israeli forces entered the room of injured patient Basil Gazawi, 18 years old, where he was with his 23-year-old brother, Mohammed Gazawi, as well as their friend, Mohammed Jalamne, who is 27. Using silencer-fitted guns, the Israeli soldiers assassinated all three men and left the hospital. The operation lasted about 10 minutes. Basil Ghazawi, who recently turned 18 years old, was receiving treatment after becoming partially paralyzed from an injury in October when Israeli forces drone-bombed an area of Jenin in an attack that killed three children. Basil's 23-year-old brother Mohammed was one of the founders of the Jenin Brigade, a resistance group that formed in the Jenin refugee camp and is associated with the Quds Brigades, the military wing of the Islamic Jihad resistance group. Their friend Mohammed Jalamne was a member of Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of the Palestinian resistance group Hamas. The Israeli military said this, has been, this had been a joint operation with the domestic spying and torture agency Shin Beit. Euromed Human Rights Monitor described the killings as an extrajudicial execution, as did the United Nations Human Rights Office. For much more on this story, read Tamara Nassar's piece, Israeli Death Squad Executes Three Palestinians in Hospital on electronicintifada.net. And those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head to electronicintifada.net for much more. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada livestream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. On the same day that the International Court of Justice delivered its preliminary orders last Friday, a federal court in Oakland, California, heard arguments in the case of Defense for Children International Palestine versus Biden. The lawsuit was brought by DCIP, along with the Center for Constitutional Rights and Al-Haq, together with Palestinians in Gaza and the U.S. They filed the lawsuit in November against President Biden, 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for the failure by those officials to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide against them, their families, and the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. Attorneys asked the court to immediately order the United States to cease military support for Israel's unfolding genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and opposed the government's efforts to have the case dismissed. According to the Center for Constitutional Rights, one plaintiff testified from Gaza, one from Ramallah, and five plaintiffs provided live testimony in court of the death, displacement, and destruction their families and communities have faced since Israel began its campaign of retaliation for the October 7th Hamas attacks. In just one example, approximately 60 members of Ahmed Abu Fool's extended family have been killed since the complaint was filed in November, underscoring the need for the court to issue an immediate injunction. Ahmed, of course, is a lawyer with Al-Haq and has been on this live stream several times before. Joining us now to talk about the federal case is one of the plaintiffs, our friend Leila Haddad. Leila is a Palestinian journalist, writer, public speaker, gardener, foodie, and mom. She's the author of the books Gaza Mom and Gaza Kitchen, and she co-edited Gaza Unsilenced with Rifat Alarir. Leila, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Hi, Leila. It's so good to see you. It's really Likewise, it's it's a privilege to be here. I was um, was getting a little, you know, wondering why why Ali hasn't had me on yet. But <laughs> better late than never. Um, before we get into the federal case, though. Uh, Tell us about your family in Gaza right now. Are you even able to get in touch with them? Where Where are they? What do you know so far? It's, you know, I just, right as you were speaking, I was trying to see if I could get any updates from my, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice, as you can see from days of, of, um, of you know, testifying and so on. Um, my cousins in Rafah in the south of Gaza are the ones that I've been in communication with, but we've lost contact for the past few days which, you know, is always unnerving because um, I know things are really bad if I don't hear from them in particular. But I also have an extended number of family members in the city that haven't left since the beginning, um, as well as within central Gaza. And I have uh, my aunt and my cousins in um, Mawasi of Khan Yunus. So the ones in the city uh, are the ones that are probably in the most precarious situation. Um, one of my cousins and her husband and her two children are right in front of the uh, Nasr hospital in Gaza City and were initially completely besieged by Israeli tanks and sort of had a small reprieve. And then in the past few days, um, you might have heard that there was another evacuation order for that entire area of Gaza, but I don't believe they left. So I just haven't been able to hear from them. I heard finally from my cousin uh, in Gaza City, who was a witness to the uh, murder of my aunt at the, uh, by Israeli forces and uh, his brothers and my cousin's wife as well. This was on November the 2nd, and I just hadn't heard from him since. And he uh, was explaining to me how he was basically uh, trying to approximate, find any kind of safety or shelter or fleeing from one neighborhood to another within the city. He initially was in the Shifa compound and then uh, a few days ago told me that that was uh, no longer safe and and uh, very difficult for his children. He moved to another area in Rimal and then another third area because the Rimal area 
um, was being hit uh, yesterday and the day before. Uh, so it's, I mean, I don't even know what to say anymore. Um, I, I feel, I feel awful talking to them. And if it's any consolation, they say to me, tell everyone that you speak to, to keep speaking out and keep writing and keep protesting and keep suing and keep, you know, whatever it is that's in your capacity to do. They said, keep doing it because it's important to us. And it, and it reminds us and it makes us feel that we are not alone, that we are heard and we are seen. Um, and we, you know, we, we have those speaking out on our behalf. Uh, I could, you know, speak in more detail about, about what my cousin relate to me, but I, um, yeah, as well. That That's such an important message, Leila. It's the same message that I get from everyone we're in contact with in Gaza. And it's one, I think, that everyone uh, who's watching today or who's going to be watching this uh, live stream later on should and do take to heart that we have to keep raising our voices. And that's that's the most important thing we can do for all our friends and colleagues and loved yes. ones uh, in, in Gaza. And we certainly pray for your family and everyone in Gaza to be safe and for this horror to end uh, very quickly, which is what you and the other plaintiffs in this um, uh, federal court case against President Biden and other top U.S. officials are trying to achieve. Um, so tell us about what happened in court last Friday. That was the same day that the World Court issued its uh, preliminary uh, measures in South Africa's case against Israel over this genocide. Uh, your case was being heard the same day. Tell us about how you joined the case as a plaintiff and what happened in federal court and, and what did it feel like to, mm. to be there? Uh, I'll start, I'll start in the middle. It, I joined the case because I felt it was, first of all, my duty that I was obligated to do everything in my power, uh, where I'm able to put an end to this genocide against my family and against my people. Uh, and I will exercise all tools at my disposal, whether that's protesting or, uh, meeting with my senator, writing letters, mobilizing locally, and going to court at using the legal measures as well. Uh, as an American taxpayer, as a Palestinian from Gaza, uh, I think it's important that I do that. I know that it is also painful and it is difficult, as you probably saw in that testimony, um, but it is also urgent and it is necessary. It is absolutely vital. And um, my mandate is my family and my people there. And as long as this is something that they feel um, is relevant and important and significant. I, I will keep doing that um, until my dying breath. And um, and so that was why I joined it uh, in terms of, um, and of course, you know, the idea being of the, behind the lawsuit um, is to ask the court to issue an injunction to, uh, to uh, put an end to furthering this genocide, to, to put an end to sending any more, to bar the U.S. government from sending any more arms and any more financial, political, uh, diplomatic support uh, to Israel, suing them, of course, uh, for preventing, uh, for failing rather to prevent an ongoing uh, genocide, which they are obligated to do. Uh, so those were the reasons why, in terms of what uh, it was, it felt like, and, and maybe I'll proceed that by saying we, frankly, 
didn't even think we would get this far. So um, I just want to say it was a, an incredible victory that that we the this was not dismissed. That the court not only did not dismiss it, but agreed to an in-person live testimony. And um, and I'll talk a little bit more about about what happened in the court. But just you know, we were all a little apprehensive, a little nervous. We weren't sure what to expect. And and we went in there, and for four and a half hours, the judge heard testimony after testimony from different Palestinians, both in the United States and in Gaza, as well as from an expert witness in genocide studies uh, about how this genocide has impacted us. Uh, extensive testimony discussing the Nakba for the first time, I dare say, in history in a U.S. court, not only as it pertained to Palestinians in 1948, but the extension of that being the ongoing genocide in Gaza and the sort of the modern day Nakba. The first time, I believe, that uh, a court ever heard any of this in the United States. And it was something incredibly, as painful as it was, incredibly powerful about that moment or, or moments, I should say, of those four hours. And we really came out feeling feeling empowered, inspired, um, hopeful. Uh, I, there's no really other other way to describe it. It was it was incredibly important and historic, and and very significantly, every single objection that was attempted by the defendants, by the U.S. government and their lawyers, was overruled by the judge. They were particularly, yeah, they were particularly. Um, you know, incest by the scholar uh, in, of genocide studies, um, Barry um, Trachtenberg, Dr. Barry Trachtenberg at the end. And, and you might have seen the reel of that where literally they're saying objection overruled, objection overruled, everything from his qualifications to his CV to why, to the fact that he, you know, didn't have a, a degree in foreign policy to which he quipped, I didn't realize that was a degree. And of course the court kind of like burst out into laughter. Um, and so they were frustrated. The, the defendants were very frustrated and, and sort of, you know, muttered at one point. Um, but again, it was really remarkable also that the judge preceded all of this by issuing some <clears throat> prepared remarks, which he didn't have to do. That kind of set the tone for the entire day um, and also listened very carefully, gave us, allotted us the maximum amount of time that we each needed for our testimonies. Um, and ended with a summary saying essentially that this was the most important case of his career that he wanted to deliberate on and take very seriously and, and letting us know that we had been seen and we had been heard, which might seem trivial. But for those of us who, who have endured and who have seen our families endure um, the horrors of this ongoing genocide, just being able to hear such words was more than we have heard or seen by our own administration in, in the entire three months. You know, instead, uh, our family's deaths, you know, have, have been raised into question, right? The, um, we've been dehumanized. Um, uh, the genocide continues despite overwhelming evidence uh, uh, demonstrating uh, the deliberateness of, of, of the, and the nature and the intent, right, um, of this genocide. And Biden himself acknowledging that many of these bombings have been indiscriminate. Yeah. Leila, just, uh... You know, one thing listening to you, I'm remembering how emotional I felt and many other people felt when we listened to South Africa present its case at the International Court of Justice and that feeling of being heard for the first time. 
I mean, it, it sounds trivial, but when you actually experience it, it's very powerful. You get this rush of emotion, of validation that we never feel as Palestinians or, or rarely feel. And just to remind viewers that in, I hadn't seen that reel you mentioned, but uh, in general, uh, in, in fact, it, it yeah, was but, IMU. Yeah, no, I encourage everyone to yeah, see it. But just, just to say that the mm -hmm. United States federal courts do not allow uh, cameras. People are used to seeing trials and hearings in U.S. state courts, but we don't have cameras in federal courts, which is why it's so important for you to be here and tell us what happened in court. Otherwise, none of us who weren't there would know about it. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and in fact, the judge, um, in addition to allowing the live testimony, allowed um, 1,000 permits, I think, for um, people to view it um, live streamed on Zoom. Um, which was also which was also incredible, but but yes, I agree with everything you said. It was because it was I don't overshadowed is maybe the wrong word, but you know by the ICJ ruling and and by everything that was happening with Onurwa, um, I don't think unless you're in the Bay Area, people got a sense or a real appreciation for how historic and how incredible um, that day and those moments uh, those moments were for Palestinians in their own words, in their own voice, for the first time to be narrating their own experience in a federal court about yeah. uh, what the United States um, is complicit in doing. <clears throat> Leila, uh, was there any indication that um, your case uh, was, was bolstered by the decision of the ICJ earlier in the day? Was there any um, discussion within the, the the testimonies that were given um, about you know the, the the obligation now that the Biden administration had I mean they had before but but especially you know emboldened by the ICJ's uh, uh, provisional measures. Yes, so in fact the the lawyers, God bless them. I wish one of them was on with us right now. Got up at the crack of dawn at three or four a.m. Pacific time to listen to the, um, the, the ruling and, um, and to deliver the documents to the judge. And so he was well aware of that ruling um, prior to our own testimonies and hearings. And, um, and I do believe that that will likely have an impact on his decision. Much of this, of course, will and may come down to um, uh, you know, matters of whether or not this is his jurisdiction um, and that's what the defense was trying to argue. But it nevertheless is a huge, regardless of the outcome, huge political victory for the Palestinians um, in terms of being heard and seen in terms of putting continuing to put pressure on the administration. Yeah. And in, in terms also um, of, you know, the, the, the judge having heard that if he is not and he, he kept saying, tell me, I want to hear from you, from the lawyers tell me what to do. It was almost like he was saying, I, I need help. I need you to help me. <laughs> um, what is it in my power to do? And, um, and they told him that this would be the last place that the, um, that we as plaintiffs could seek, um, recourse, legal recourse. Um, and I think he really took that to heart or, or, you know, so that's our hope at least. Um, but again, regardless, we still feel just having gotten this far is really, a huge, a huge victory. Yeah. Um, and it was an incredible moment um, as far as the Palestinian struggle um, and, and the Palestinian discourse in the United States goes.
And it, it really is a credit to the lawyers and all the plaintiffs, uh, which include Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinian Americans who are directly affected, who have family in Gaza. And we did have someone uh, from the Center for Constitutional Rights on right when this lawsuit was filed. And we definitely should have a lawyer back uh, as this case proceeds to kind of uh, get into some of the in and outs. But uh, one of the things I understand about the case uh, is that the Genocide Convention, the International Genocide Convention, is incorporated into United States law because the United States ratified it and President Ronald Reagan signed it. And so the obligations on President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin are legally binding. And you are going to court in order to enforce their obligations under United States law and international law. And I think it's so hard for us to ever feel any hope because, and we've said this in the past few weeks as we've discussed the ICJ case and other attempts at justice, you know, we get to a certain point and the door gets slammed in our face. They always find a way to shut it down. And so we are very cautious. We're like people who've who've touched the hot stove and who are now very careful uh, about it. So um, I think it, it, it's just to remind ourselves that we we go into this with great apprehension, but to hear you, Leila, it just does give me hope. And and it's it's something we have to continue to to push. We have to use every tool in our uh, in our reach to try to bring justice for our uh, friends, family and people in Gaza and in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we, we don't have a choice. Um, and it was just, as you said, you know, we, we're constantly having as Palestinians to put on our different hats, you know. Um, but it was it was emotional and painful um, to for myself and to hear the doctor from from Gaza testify. He started us off and to say, I have nothing left but my breath. Israel, with the United States' help, has taken it all away. Um, and just those words stick out in my mind. Sorry, now I'm going to get all teary-eyed again. So I see I can hold it together. Um, that we are doing this, you know, our taxes, our government, and that was really important to demonstrate. Um, what I had said was, you know, it's my tax dollars and my government that are killing my family. And President Biden can put an end to this with one phone call, but he is deliberately choosing not to, and in fact is doing quite the opposite and bypassing Congress and sending more arms and providing, you know, financial and political and diplomatic cover and uh, dehumanizing Palestinians and denying our deaths. And and then what? And I really do feel that the judge took this to heart. The, the testimonies ended, as I said, with Dr. Trachtenberg's testimony in which he said, this is a textbook case of genocide. This is what I have studied for me and other experts our entire lives to prevent something like this from happening, to be able to come and testify and say, this should not be happening, not to theorize about it or to reflectively look back and say it shouldn't have happened. And that that was incredibly powerful to, to begin 
and to end with those two testimonies interspersed, of course, with our own testimonies about what our families are enduring and continue to endure um, in Gaza. Hmm. Um, what is the timeline for the judgment? Is there any indication um, about, you know, when, when the judge will make his decision? And then, you know, if, if he finds that, uh, that the Biden administration are, are guilty um, of the accusations that, that are laid out in this case. What happens next? So that I don't know, not being the lawyer, but I do know that he said he wanted to take his time, that he could have easily dismissed it before mm. he could have even said there's no hearing and he didn't do that. Um, and then he could have even heard us just for the sake of hearing us and then said dismissed. And he also didn't do that. Um, he did say this was the most important case of his career and that he was taking the responsibility very seriously with the understanding that it had um, the ability to, you know, save lives, to to potentially set a legal precedent, um, to uh, provide reprieve, obviously, for, for millions of people. Um, and that, as I said, there was no other place where we could go as plaintiffs um, to argue our case. So he said he wanted to take his time to deliberate um, and think about it and uh, look into all the jurisdictional issues and so on. So I'm really not sure in terms of the, the timeline. I know that one of the lawyers, Diala Jamas, had said it could be days, it could be weeks. Um, so something in, in the range of that. Um, in terms of, of course, what the potential outcomes could be, he could decide that this was um, indeed not within his jurisdictional authority powers um, to... to uh, speak to the executive uh, branch or tell the executive what to do. He could decide that um, he wants to issue an injunction telling them that they uh, need to cease, you know, sending any further weapons, for example. Um, so there's a range of things that he could potentially, uh, potentially do. Hmm. And, and, and regardless, sorry, I should, one more thing that regardless, again, this is on the record now, right? This right. is in the, in the court, in the federal court record online. Um, that President Biden and Secretary of State uh, Blinken, I don't know why I kept saying Clinton in my live videos, <laughs> maybe her too, but um, um, <laughs> she's definitely implicated. Yeah. yeah, I was listening to one of the things I recorded later and I kept saying Clinton, Clinton, but anyway, um, um, that they are now, it is on the record that they have been accused um, of, of complicity and genocide. That's that's very important. We'll we'll be watching it. I believe that this you know this is still a pre preliminary phase of yes. the case, uh, and what we hope is that the judge will act quickly and decisively and issue an injunction, which could include, as you mentioned, ordering the administration to stop supplying the weapons which are being used for the genocide. I did see one question in the comments. People were asking if there is a similar lawsuit in Canada. And mm -hmm. I believe the answer to that is yes, uh, that there is either one uh, that has been filed or is being filed. I don't have the information at my fingertips, but that is something perhaps we can come back to uh, in a future show. I know that there's some local maybe civil lawsuits, if I'm not mistaken, not federal ones though. Like, so there's one in Chicago, I know um, that is ongoing, but I'm not sure of the difference. I believe this is the only federal one in the United States. Right. <laughs> and, and, and maybe if anyone knows more about the case in Canada, we'll certainly try to get that information for a future show. Yeah. Uh, finally, Leila, um, you know, uh, how are you 
doing personally with all of this? Um, you know, you're a mom, you have children, uh, you are in the belly of the beast, you know, very close to DC. Um, and, and you're trying to, uh, you know, figure out how, how to, how to care for your family, uh, 10,000 miles away. What, how are you doing? I, you know, this, that's the question of the hour, right? How are we all doing? Uh, uh, I mean, we're doing as well as can be expected, I guess, but it's not a question. I mean, what I just keep saying is we don't have the luxury to grieve or reflect. Uh, we are not in that position right now. Um, at least not speaking for myself personally. Um, all I can do is is turn, is to convert that emotion and that overwhelming feeling of grief and despair into action. And so while I dread being, as you said here, near the belly of the beast, um, it truly and genuinely disgusts me. Um, I also recognize that I, um, I have this burden and this responsibility to do everything I can um, on their behalf and on the behalf of, of others as well who don't have um, who don't have that privilege. And so it's been incredibly difficult and you know it's stressful on the family, but again, that's kind of trivial compared to what our own families um, are going through. And yeah, it's difficult to speak to them and I just keep apologizing and saying, I don't know what to tell you, you know And that's this is why we do what we do that we're literally paying for your suffering. you know we're, we're bankrolling your suffering. Um, so it's just a heavy, you know, sorry, thing to, to live with. Um, but, you know, we're here for a reason. And so we need to use our voices. And it's important to me to keep hearing them say, <clears throat> the last thing they want us to do is to kind of break down and forget about them and feel hopeless or stop posting and stop talking and stop writing and, um, and just, you know, feel overwhelmed. Um, that's really the last thing that they need um, and the last thing uh, that I think we should be doing. Um, Leila, if I, if I can just say, uh, we all share the feelings that you have and, and yeah. this can be very difficult at times and the emotions are sometimes really just below the surface. And sometimes we don't want to acknowledge that just for the reason you said that you know, what we're going through pales in significance to what what our friends and loved ones in Gaza are going through. But it is painful for you. It is painful for all of us. And uh, we have to look after ourselves and each other so that we can be there for them and, and not to minimize the what we, we too are going through because we need to be strong and we need to be together for them. And we... We, uh, I, I, I am so awe-inspired by what you're doing and the work you've done over the years. And we're going to let you go, but just say one word to us. I have right behind me, and you have it behind you too. Yes, <laughs> the, the book that you co-edited with Rifat Al Arir, our dear friend, the educator, the professor, the poet, who was assassinated, murdered by Israel on December sixth and whose loss we feel every day. Just say a word about your experience with Rifat and what you'd like people to know about him. Oh, gosh, Ali, I don't know if I can. Um, <laughs> uh, 
you know, maybe I'll just start by saying, I think I'm going to preface, you know, what I want to say about Rifat by saying, I think one of the most, what's made this particular assault so difficult and so different is the, the deliberateness and the sort of the brazen nature of it, right? Of the public um, um, intent of, of genocide, of the mocking, of the literally intentional deliberate targeting of everything of value and beauty and meaning in Gaza. You know, seeing my entire neighborhood, I've talked extensively about this, that was not too far from Rifat's home um, on the second day, just for what, for no reason whatsoever, playgrounds, cafes, you know, the archives, the theater near my house, completely decimated and destroyed and leveled. Um, and then the universities and, and the, you know, the beach promenade. And, and then of course, Rifat himself. Um, that to me has been the most painful part. Um, and I just, you know, I kept thinking, I st we still have him in all these WhatsApp groups, you know, it's kind of weird. And there was just a sort of a, some kind of ominous feeling hanging over us in all of our conversations. It's almost like he knew he was going to die um, just in the days leading up to his his assassination. Um, I know he was on, on here as well, um, in which he told me like how tired he was and how he had to walk for hours to get water for his family and how, you know, with um, sort of classic Grafat wit talking about how he's kind of going crazy in a room with 30 people and uh, children running all over the place and an old man with a hundred conspiracy theories that wasn't making matters any better. Um, and he said, Leila, we're just, just so tired. You know, I've never been tired, but I'm tired and kind of surviving on dates. And he went to get some of the olive oil that he had pressed for, from that, from the last year, um, and sent me a picture that I sent around saying, you know, you think we could start this campaign? We're raising his hand like this, um, you know, remembering the child that had been killed with a piece of bread in her hand. But it, you know, we, yes, you, we worked together closely over the years. I hosted him here as you did in Chicago. I visited him in Gaza, which was one of the most beautiful um, memories I have. Um, he was so enthusiastic. His students were so enthusiastic. There was something incredibly powerful about that experience too, being able to reunite, you know, in Gaza, in our own home, on his turf, uh, speaking to the students um, about the importance um, and the technique of how to share and tell your stories, to narrate your own experience. That's what that, the whole talk and the sort of conversation was about. Um, and then me and him and Nuseiba um, went to the beach and she made maftool and we we ate together. And that was one of the last pictures that we have together on the beach of Gaza. So, you know, I just feel at peace knowing he did everything in his power, as we should as well. Um, to speak truth to power and to, you know, till his dying moment, right? Um, and I think we, that's, we take a lesson from that. Um, and we honor his memory by continuing his work, continuing his legacy, I think. Leila Haddad, um, we appreciate you and we love you. 
and um, thank you so much for 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 being who you are and continuing to do the work that you've been doing for so long, especially over the last four months um, with so much pain and anger and rage and grief and everything and loss um, and worry and frustration and all the, all the things together in one. We'd love to have you back on. Um, and uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me again. And again, I apologize. I did not mean No, me. please. No, no, no. Did no. you cry fast? No, but... we don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no apologies. Please. Oh, okay. Thank, Thank you, you Leila. And, I, and I'm sorry. I apologize. Please forgive me for us taking so long to have you. It was overdue. <laughs> but I hope, you will, I, hope, for. I hope you will. I hope you will. Like what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hope you will come back soon. Anytime. I'm more than happy. Wonderful. Thank you. Leila Haddad is a plaintiff in the federal lawsuit against Biden at all. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we will, of course, continue updating on that lawsuit as well. Um, but yeah, you're also the co-editor with Rifat of Gaza Unsilenced there in the background. You're also uh, the author of The Gaza Kitchen and Gaza Mom. Leila, thank you so much again. And uh, we'll see you, you soon. Thank you all. Thank you. Oh, okay. Well, um, coming up uh, in in, uh, in in our after this next segment, we'll have uh, Chris Gunnis, uh, formerly the head of the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees. But first, Ali, you have an update um, on the. It's, it's so hard to segue. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But but you do have an update on. The situation, uh, the the uh, mass, the so-called mass rape investigation published by the New York Times in December. We wanted to, we didn't want to revisit this, but we have to. Um, tell us about what's uh, what's the updates here. Yeah, first to remind our viewers, a month ago, the New York Times published an article with the headline "Screams Without Words: How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. And it was supposedly the result of a two-month-long investigation led by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jeffrey Gettleman. Uh, the Times claimed to present evidence that Hamas fighters raped Israeli women on October 7th and that, quote, the attacks against women were not isolated events but part of a broader pattern of gender-based violence. But as we showed on our January 3rd live stream, the Times' so-called investigation was deeply flawed, and I would go as far as to say fraudulent. People can watch that segment on our YouTube channel. Yeah, and we can link to that. Um, but I know that uh, some staffers inside the New York Times uh, itself have reached similar conclusions to the one that we and other independent outlets have reached. Is that right? That's right. On January 28th, The Intercept revealed that The Times pulled a high-profile episode of its podcast, The Daily, that was based on uh, Gettleman's mass rapes article. According to The Intercept, the decision not to air the episode was taken, quote, amid a furious internal debate about the strength of the paper's original reporting on the subject. And I want to know that The Daily is more than just an ordinary podcast. It is broadcast every weekday on public radio stations around the United States. So millions of people hear it. It's very influential. According to The Intercept, the episode was supposed to air on January 9th, 
But as criticism of Gettleman's reporting grew internally and externally, the Daily shelved the original script and put a hold on the episode. Now, they then wrote a new script, one that was, according to The Intercept, allow, that allowed for uncertainty and asked open-ended questions that were absent from the original article. In other words, The Daily was going to cast doubt on The Times' own reporting. But even that new script uh, remains the subject of significant controversy within The Times newsroom and has yet to air. According to The Intercept, some New York Times staffers fear another caliphate-level journalistic debacle. Right, and uh, remind our viewers what that is. Right. Caliphate was a sensational multi-part podcast by New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki. It was released in 2018. It purported to be the story of a young Canadian Muslim who was radicalized and went on to Syria to join ISIS and commit a number of gruesome atrocities that were described in detail in the podcast. But the, ma the man turned out to be a total fraud. He made everything up. And the New York Times ignored many of the red flags that his story was fake. The Times ended up retracting the podcast, and it was obviously a huge embarrassment. This malpractice is not harmless. The podcast undoubtedly fed uh, anti-Muslim fear-mongering in both Canada and the U.S. by boosting the notion that young Muslims in these countries present a grave danger. And I would say that the New York Times' reporting of Israeli atrocity propaganda since October 7, such as the claims of mass rape, is also extremely harmful because it provides Israel with a justification for and distraction from its genocidal crimes against Palestinians in Gaza. And it really seems to me that the New York Times as an institution has not learned the lessons from the caliphate debacle, although it appears that at least some of its staff have, which is why they are now raising the alarm over the Gettleman article. Have there been any uh, New York Times editors who have responded to this controversy over the mass rapes article? Uh, you know, is anyone taking this seriously from inside? One New York Times staffer told The Intercept, quote, there seems to be no self-awareness at the top. The staffer added that Gettleman's story, quote, deserved more fact-checking and much more reporting, all basic standards applied to countless other stories, end quote. But instead of assigning editors to review Gettleman's work with some objectivity, it appears the Times has allowed him to investigate himself. <laughs> Sources, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. Sources at the Times told The Intercept that Gettleman was assigned to write a follow-up story and gather evidence to support his original claims that were in the story back in December. Right. Amazing. Um, and, and that article that Gettleman did uh, investigating himself has now been published. Does it resolve any of the problems with his original quote-unquote report? Or did he come up with any new evidence? Is there anything now to back up the, the, the spurious claims that have been debunked? <laughs> yeah, it was published on January 29th. And while it does contain new unverified claims and a lot of spin and evasion, there is nothing in it that you could call new evidence. Mm -hmm. Gettleman really tries to skirt around or simply ignores the key problems with his reporting that we and others have pointed out. Right.
convenient. Um, what are some of those key problems? Well, first, there is the issue of Gal Abdush. She is an Israeli woman who was killed on October 7th. In his original article, Gettleman portrays her as the central victim of this so-called pattern of rape allegedly carried out by Hamas. But several members of Gal Abdush's family pushed back very strongly against Gettleman's claims. They say that there is no proof that Gal Abdush was raped, and they said that the Times manipulated them. They had no idea that the story Gettleman was working on was going to claim that Abdush uh, was raped. Yeah. Gettleman provides absolutely no new evidence on this and actually has to acknowledge that, quote, family members have denied or cast doubt on the claims that she was raped. He then asserts that critics have used the comments of Gal Abdush's family, quote, to assert falsely that the family had renounced the article, end quote, but that is not false. Family members did renounce the claims in Gettleman's article, and Gettleman has come up with no new evidence to back them up. And Gal Abdush's mother said she only learned of the claim that her daughter had been sexually assaulted from the, from the New York Times article itself. Atrocious. Um, in our previous segment on this, you pointed out how the four supposed eyewitnesses uh, to the alleged rapes each lacked credibility. Uh, you pointed out that their stories were inherently unlikely or even impossible, that there was a total lack of corroboration, including bodies and other physical and forensic evidence, um, or because the supposed eyewitnesses changed their stories over time. Um, does Gettleman address any of that in this new piece? He does address it, but only in a way that raises even more questions about his shoddy reporting, fraudulent reporting, I would yeah. say. For example, there's the case of Sapir, a woman who supposedly saw Hamas fighters gang rape and murder five women, then cut off the breast of one of them and start tossing it around like a ball. She also claimed she saw Hamas fighters prancing around with severed heads of, of three women lifted up over their heads. As we pointed out previously, her incredible atrocity tale came with no corroboration. Where were the severed heads? Where were the headless bodies? Where was all the blood and DNA? All this horror could not have happened while leaving no trace behind. Now, Gettleman makes this claim, citing Israeli authorities. I quote, the police also said they found Sapir's bag where she said she had been hiding and women's clothing near where she said the rapes occurred, and three severed heads were found farther away near the bodies of assailants in military fatigues, Israeli officials said, without providing more detail, end quote. None of these details were in his original story, and it all sounds very convenient. I've been following this issue very closely, and this is the first time in almost four months that we hear it claimed that this sort of physical evidence exists. But why didn't Gettleman insist on seeing crime scene photos or any other physical evidence? Again, there's nothing new here except more claims and assertions from the authorities of the same regime that is perpetrating genocide in Gaza, claims that neither we nor Gettleman can verify, but which Gettleman and the New York Times are happy to regurgitate, apparently without a, a shred of skepticism. And then there's the second and the only other eyewitness to the same alleged incident, a man called Yura Carroll. As we po pointed out, 
In an earlier account, Carroll told Israeli media he did not see the rape, but only that Sapir had told him about it. But in Gettleman's original article, Carroll is quoted as saying he saw these events with his own eyes. In the new article, Gettleman does not challenge Carroll with his previous contradictory statements, but simply allows him to reassert his claims. Again, absolutely nothing new. I should point out that neither Sapir nor Carol were named in the earlier account in Haaretz where the second witness says he did not see the rape. But there's enough similarity that we can conclude with confidence that this is the same alleged uh, incident. Uh, There was another supposed eyewitness to a separate alleged rape, a man called Roz Cohen. Um, And last time we talked about this, you pointed out how Cohen's story had changed repeatedly since October 7th. Does Gettleman address that? If so, how does he address it? Yeah, that's right. We and other outlets have pointed out how Cohen's accounts have have kept changing over time, including how in, in his initial statements about October 7th, Cohen made no mention of rape. And now this is the laughable excuse that Gettleman comes up with to cover up for Cohen's shifting narratives. Gettleman writes, quote, asked this month why he had not mentioned rape at first, Mr. Cohen cited the stress of his experience and said in a text message that he had not realized then that he was one of the few surviving witnesses. He declined to be interviewed again, saying he was working to recover from the trauma he suffered, end quote. And Gettleman also tries to appeal to authority to cover up for Cohen's evasions and lies. He quotes a person he describes as a Ukrainian lawyer specializing in international law, including crimes against women. And this lawyer says that a variation in the testimony given by the eyewitness, quote, does not necessarily invalidate the witness's experience. And she also puts Cohen's shifting story down to trauma. Uh, isn't that convenient? I guess it's a, a case of uh, what they say uh, online, trust me, bro. Yeah. And also notice that Gettleman claims that Cohen was, quote, one of the few surviving witnesses, end quote. It's always important to remind ourselves that Israeli authorities and Gettleman and lots of other media have been claiming all along that there was a pattern of rapes, a deliberate mass campaign of sexual violence as a weapon of war. And yet in his new article, Gettleman has not come up with any other examples in addition to the alleged cases he reported and which are simply not credible. There should be tons of witnesses and tons of evidence, including forensics and video, but there just isn't. Um, There is one more supposed eyewitness who is with Raz Cohen, a fashion designer named Shoam Guetta. Guetta claims he saw the same assault as Cohen, but there's nothing to corroborate it. Gettleman does not add anything new about Guetta, just repetition of what he claimed in the earlier article. But it's notable that Guetta has been a publicity seeker from the start. In the last few weeks, he's been deployed in Gaza with the Israeli army, and he posted this photo on Facebook where he actually advertises his collection Uh, his fashion collection called Gutos on the wall of a house in Gaza. You can see that uh, photo here. I don't know what to say about that um, other than absolutely despicable. Um, Ali, the last time you talked about uh, how Gettleman relied 
to a large extent on Zaka, um, the the Jewish extremist group that goes to crime scenes to collect bodies uh, or body parts for burials, but which even by its own admission has no expertise in forensics or pathology. I don't think they're even like officially licensed by any sort of like public health uh, body. Um, Zaka leaders and and its personnel have lied repeatedly about what they saw on October 7th, um, including the completely debunked stories of burned children and a pregnant woman whose belly was sliced open, just um, these horrific, uh, you know, fantasy myths. Um, does Gettleman explain in his new article why he relied on an organization, Zaka, that has lied so much and has a vested interest in these lies? No. Zaka is not even mentioned in Gettleman's new article. It appears there was no way for him to spin away his egregious malpractice of relying on such an organization. So he just ignores the matter. Mm -hmm. It's really a fatal blow to his credibility. I suspect that Gettleman's shoddy effort to get himself off the hook is not going to silence the internal dissent within the New York Times and may even heighten it. After all, why is Gettleman being allowed to investigate himself to try to airbrush away his deceptions? And why are editors letting him do it? The New York Times, if it had a shred of integrity, would retract Gettleman's story completely. Yeah. Uh, Ali, is there anything else we should know about this? Well, I just want to add that The Intercept's reporting is very welcome, and their article goes into a lot more detail about the Times' institutional anti-Palestinian bias, much more than we have time to go into here. But I did find it disappointing that they did not give credit to those of us who did the heavy lifting to debunk Gettleman's story in particular and Israel's evidence-free claims of mass rape in general. Less surprisingly, Gettleman didn't link to us either. Uh, so I just want to give a shout out to Mondo Weiss in the Gray Zone. And there are others as well, uh, people who have used their uh, Twitter accounts to expose some of this. Because together, together with the Electronic Intifada, I think we have all done very important work on this. We'll cut this segment of the live stream as a separate video, and we'll be sure to include links in the description to some of those key articles on the collapsing mass rapes narrative uh, from all of these publications, uh, including, of course, the Electronic Intifada. Thank you so much, Ali, for that update, a uh, very necessary update. And um, yeah, and and sadly, we'll probably have to keep updating <laughs> because the story as, will as, go away. Yeah, as Asa keeps saying, it is a bit like uh, all of these things are a bit like the fake Labour Party anti-Semitism crisis in the UK. You think you're done with it and then, then it just keeps coming back. Yeah, it's like whack-a-mole. Um, well, thank you so much, Ali. Again, uh, you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada's live stream. Uh, we're going to turn now to uh, our next guest, uh, Chris Gunnis. The United States and allied governments have frozen funding to UNRWA, the UN agency that provides basic health and education services to millions of Palestinian refugees. Right now, UNRWA is a lifeline for Palestinians facing Israel's genocide in Gaza. The pretext for the funding freeze is Israel's claim, which cannot be independently verified, 
that 12 out of the thousands of UNRWA employees in Gaza took part in the October 7th resistance operation. The UN has fired a number of them without due process and without any credible investigations being completed. We all know how much Israel has lied during this genocide, so we can't take any of their accusations at face value, especially when we have not heard from those Israel is accusing. But this does appear to be uh, part of Israel's long-running effort to destroy UNRWA. And we want to welcome our guest, Chris Gunnis. Uh, Chris is a former spokesperson for UNRWA. Um, we've had him, We the last time we had you on the program, Chris, was uh, during the very delicate week-long uh, ceasefire, uh, truce um, back in November. And so, so much has happened since then. It's really good to see you. And thank you so much for coming back on the Electronic Interface. Thank you, Nora. Thank, thank you, Ali. Thank lovely, you. To, lovely to see you again. Th yes. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for coming back. Now, Chris, more than 150 UNRWA workers have been killed during this Israeli genocide in Gaza. And that's the largest number of UN personnel killed in any conflict situation in the history of the United Nations. And according to the most recent figures from UNRWA, more than 145 of its facilities in Gaza have been damaged. How can we explain that none of that has prompted either the United States or its allies to curtail their military, political, economic, and diplomatic support for the perpetrator Israel? Doesn't that simply reveal that whatever Israel is claiming those workers did is just a pretext for an attack on UNRWA as an organization? Ali, this is very consistent with a repeated pattern of political attacks on UNRWA. And by the way, it always spikes when there's an upturn in the fighting or the violence, call it what you will, a genocide in Gaza. It always goes up. So always when you know Israel attacks UNRWA, uh, sorry, tax Gaza, and there are you know bombs going off in schools. Immediately, the whole machinery kicks in, rather as it has done this time, and you get these accusations. So these accusations are part of a pattern. Number one, um, it's also part of a political. Uh, it's not even you know a, a, it's it's not even a sort of thinly disguised conspiracy. I mean, go on Google, um, look at the document that was released, I believe, on the twenty sixth of December where the Israelis sort of let out or was leaked. I don't know how it got into the public domain, but it was authenticated. Um, a three-point plan. One is a smear campaign against UNRWA. The second phase was a defund um, campaign against UNRWA. And the third was a dismantle, destroy phase of UNRWA. And I think what we're seeing now is certainly part two, the defund UNRWA, um, sort of morphing into part three, which is de destroy um, UNRWA. So yes, it's part of a political attack. And what's so sad, I mean, what's really sad this time, and by the way, the figure has gone up, the number of donors, I've got it in front of me, it's now 16. Um, Australia, Austria, Canada, Estonia, Finland, Germany, Italy, Iceland, Japan, Latvia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Romania, UK and US, it's now gone up. Those people have really stabbed the agency in the back. It's an absolute betrayal. Um, you know, UNRWA, as you said, Nora, in your introduction, they dismiss these people even before the investigation, which is being done by the Office of Internal Oversight in New York, had barely begun. I mean, you know, and, 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 and what more do the donors want? And, and, you know, this is why I come to this conspiracy. This is what this, 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 uh, this this uh, campaign to destroy UNRWA. If the donors really wanted to restore aid, 
they would have said to UNRWA, don't you think, well, here's what you've got to do in order to get funding restored, X, Y, and Z. UNRWA hasn't been told that. I was talking to UNRWA colleagues earlier today, and I said, have they told you what you've got to do? And they said, no. I said, I think that's sort of poor donorship, a bit odd. And the other thing, of course, is none of them, if you ask them, you say, what are you trying to achieve by this suspension of aid? They can't tell you. I mean, what more proof do you so why, have? Why are they doing it? Why, why well, I think there really is. I mean, I think that this utterly absurd, far-right, Israeli fascistic dream um, that you can somehow get rid of Palestine refugees if you get rid of the agency that's providing services to them, I think they actually believe that. I mean, that's a bit like saying that if you got rid of Oxfam, you'd get rid of poor people. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Or saying, you know, um, you know, a nurse in the National Health Service in Britain has murdered some babies. Let's just cut off funding to the NHS. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And by the way, I mean, bad things happen in UN agencies, sadly, all around the world. You had child abuse scandals in UN peacekeeping. I mean, murders, crimes, terrible things. But the donors don't turn around and say, well, we'll cut off aid entirely. It's only when Israel decides that it's going to have this crazy campaign. And the donors panicked. I mean, let's be clear here. The donors panicked. And I honestly, to be, I mean, I think, you know, Philippe Lazzarini, um, God bless him, I think he's doing, you know, an, under incredible... And he is the, he's the Commissioner General, the, Commissioner the head General. of UNRWA, yeah. Wants, yeah, a man I know well. I really like the guy. But once he, and I, as I say, I think some of his public advocacy has been superb, and I think he's doing a good job under appalling pressure. But once he basically sacked these people, Israel could turn around and say, well, there you go, they're guilty. But actually, I don't think the evidence they've produced, and I haven't seen it, but you know, from what I understand, it's not been properly assessed yet, but there's such a long history of lies, misinformation. I mean, I, I remember the 2014 conflict, just to name but one. Um, you know, every time they hit an under school, they put out this thing, Mark Regev would phone up a journalist, the journalist would phone me up and say, Mark Regev just told us that, you know, there are militants firing rockets out of the schools. Of course, in the, the fog of war, we couldn't send staff in immediately to investigate because there were explosions going on. Staff's, were in, staff's, staff's, staff's lives were in danger. But when it was all over and we started to investigate, turned out to be absolute nonsense. The vast majority of these accusations that are made turn out to be utter nonsense. And so, you know, you make what we philosophers, what philosophers call inductive generalizations, and you say, well, you know, it's very likely that this is possibly also nonsense. And uh, Ali, would you allow me to make just one very quick point? This organization, Impact SE, um, they are the ones who sat in Congress. Marcus Shep, who's the guy who's in charge of them, um, making all these accusations against UNRWA. Now, talking of a lack of authority, just in 2022, I believe it was, the UNRWA Commissioner General responded to one of these attacks they'd made on UNRWA textbooks. And when UNRWA started to investigate the texts which we were being attacked over, it turned out UNRWA didn't even use those books. I mean, why does the world give credence and credibility put them in a hearing in Capitol Hill and have them saying these extraordinary things about UNRWA's education when it has a proven track record in either making things up or getting things wrong. Look on UNRWA's website and have a look at the press suite that was put out. It's crystal clear. I mean, no, this is mad. And UNRWA, UNRWA has got systems in place better than anybody else. And, and you know, this is, a, if you'll allow me to address this, 
um, Nora and Ali. There's all this talk. We heard it on, uh, on Capitol Hill yesterday. Let's replace UNRWA. Well, let me tell you, UNRWA has 13,000 staff in Gaza alone. It's got nearer 33 in the rest of the region, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and the West Bank, and then Gaza. If you wanted to get 13,000 people, and they're all doing a job, right? So if you want to replace UNRWA to do its present job, you'd have to recruit 13,000 people. If you want to cut its mandate down, which only the General Assembly can do, not just Israel, um, you could, say, make it 6,000. But let's stick with the figure of 13,000. You'd have to put adverts in websites or newspapers or somewhere to recruit 13,000 people. You'd then have to get the, the personnel department to go through all the applications, have the first interviews, you know, whittle them down, do the second interview. Then you'd make your choice of your candidates. Then you've got to do the onboarding process. And, and you've got and you've to got do that during, and you've got to do all that during the genocide. Yeah. yeah. But when people are starving. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, and and then what you do is you onboard them, you do all the security checks. Um, people, people who've got this idea that you can replace UNRWA overnight and bring in UNHCR. And by the way, UNRWA are the cheapest workers in, 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 the, in frankly, in the entire UN system. So the donors who have not thought through the practicalities, and I think it's beginning to dawn on them, and the Israeli generals, by the way, who think, oh my God, we're the occupying power. If we get rid of UNRWA, we might have to start yeah. doing but, food distributions. But Chris, Chris, there's there's so much there to unpack, and I just want to put a couple of points out there because <laughs> that, that that there was a lot that you addressed. First of all, this Israeli pattern of throwing out accusations and then the donors jump. This is not new. We saw this. Uh, that... Sorry, we, finish, we... Ali. Finish. Yeah. Shall I go? Well, I, I just want to put a few things to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they did this uh, back in, uh, I think it was October 2021, with the major Palestinian human rights groups like Al-Haq, Al-Mizan, Defense for Children International, and all the European donors cut off their funds, and they said, oh, we take the Israeli allegations about ties to terrorism very, very seriously, and we're going to investigate, and we, we, we're going to freeze our funding. And then, of course, there is a long investigation. Then, of course, it comes out in the end that the Israeli allegations are completely baseless. But by that time, the damage has been done to the reputations of those organizations and to their functioning and to their funding and so on. Uh, that's, that's something that... Uh, our colleague Maureen writes about in her piece that Nora referred to earlier. We can flash that up on the screen so people can find it. And they also did this with World Vision, the major international yeah. charity that works in Gaza, where Israel arrested its Gaza director, Mohammed Al-Halabi. He's still in prison, yeah. made these ridiculous uh, accusations that he had funneled $40, 50000000 million from uh, World Vision's funding to Hamas, something World Vision said was impossible because they don't have that budget. Our, our entire program in Gaza was something like $2 million, and World Vision, which is based in the US, and it was the Australian branch, the Australian government, not a great friend of the Palestinians, investigated. Uh, World Vision investigated. They hired their own independent auditors, and they all found it was basis. So this is a play book that Israel does repeatedly. But, but the Ali, point you could... make, uh, what, uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris. No, no, well, I was going to say, I mean, there is something that feels, feels slightly different, and that is that um, I was not in certain time I've been, you know, involved in UNRWA. 
we've never had a situation where the top donors have simply defunded um, over something like this. I mean, it's so disproportionate and it is unprecedented. I mean, they've never just, you know, we're talking about half a billion dollars they've taken with them, which is going to affect UNRWA programs. The what will budget. be the impact of that, Chris? Talk about well, I mean, what will I mean, be the impact. Okay, so UNRWA's budget has two tranches. There's the core budget, which is education, health, relief, and social services, which is the vast majority um, of the budget. And the biggest part of that, more than half, is educating way over half a million children across the Middle East. So that's under threat. And why any government that's worried about regional stability in the Middle East thinks that defunding human development programs that bring a sense of calm and stability in some of the most marginalized, disadvantaged, fragile communities in the Middle East, that that somehow contributes to regional stability. I find that quite, you know, quite hard to get my mind around. Um, but of course, the other part is the emergency assistance. So UNRWA, through its history, has done schools and health and off it goes. And then suddenly a war or a genocide or something will break out around them and they have to drop everything, employ new people, use up the emergency budget, go fund, you know, go after funds and do this. And that's sort of what's really at, at, at stake here. Um, you know, the aid pipeline is quite, um, it's quite fragile. There are in-kind donations, but basically if you want to procure food, unless you get it in-kind, you've got to buy it. And that means having money. And if you don't have that money, you can't buy food, you can't buy medicine, you can't buy, you know, sanitary products for the women, you can't buy vaccines for the newborn babies. So, you know, that's my biggest concern. It's these emergency services, which the people coming into the health centers and the food distribution centers, you know, but, you know, the school, the, the school, the school term should have started. Kids should be at school. Um, so, but it's not just the kids in Gaza. Oh, donors concerned about regional health, about regional stability. It's the schools in Nahal Barrett. It's the schools in Sabra, Shatila in the south, in Sidon and Tyr. It's the schools in Yarmouk. It's the schools in Homs. It's the schools in Marka Camp um, in Jordan. You know, some of the some of the worst camps um, in the Middle East. You're going to start finding kids on the streets of these places. Um, and you know, guess what? Pretty, you know, well, well educated but underemployed people do. I mean, I don't want to buy into this stereotype that all Palestinians are terrorists, but, you know, you are going to start having hungry, angry people. And why anyone thinks having large populations of hungry, angry people on the doorstep of Israel, even if we for a moment buy into the security narrative of Israel as a reason for supporting UNRWA, which, of course, you know, I don't. I think there are human development reasons for um, and human rights reasons for supporting UNRWA. But even if you buy into that, it's just not in Israel's interest to have all these, you know, people in a desperate situation, having seen their relatives being slaughtered on the doorstep of Israel. It's they're creating another, um, you know, another a huge Palestinian refugee population. And I wanted to come back to something you asked earlier, Ali and Nori, if you'll give me time. Um, this idea um, that somehow on the step towards ethnically cleansing and forcing these people into the Sinai, which, by the way, is very clearly in the leaked document of the 13th of October, the security document. It was where they presented three options. And the preferred option, you know, time and time again endorsed was kick all these refugees out, kick all the, even the non-refugees. So Gaza, two thirds refugees, one third not, but kick them all out into Sinai. Um, that's apparently one of the plans. Now, in order to do that, it's going to be quite useful to get rid of UNRWA because UNRWA doesn't have a mandate to operate, only has a mandate to operate in these five areas, Gaza, West Bank, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. You'd have to bring in UNHCR if you really wanted to do that. But I can tell you, my old boss, Filippo Grandi, 
Um, I think he'd have a total nosebleed if he starts contemplating the idea of setting up tented cities for Palestinians in, in Sinai. And apart from anything else, there's Egypt's sovereignty, the small issue of Egypt's sovereignty, let alone poverty levels there. So the idea that Egypt would take all this on and that UNHCR would gladly step in to fail the, the, fulfill the role of UNRWA, it's all... It's all far-right cuckoo land stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think they're going to come to their senses. I think the donors are already coming in, coming to their senses and thinking, what have we bought into? Um, you know, I think the penny's beginning to drop. But, you know, they've betrayed UNRWA. They've betrayed um, the, 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 the refugees. Um, and the other point, I, if you won't mind, if I, I make, is that where are the Arabs? Now, I know that the Arabs say, well, Israel blows up Gaza every three or four years and we always rebuild it and, you know, blah, blah. And I totally understand that, right? Um, you know, Israel is allowed off the lead. America supplies the arms. They blow it up. Um, but this is the narrative, that, which, is the, which is the classic Arab narrative with UNRWA, which is the Germans did the Holocaust, drove the Jews into, you know, the Jews fled to Palestine. Um, the Palestinians were displaced and therefore it's a European-American problem to sort out the impact of the displacement of Palestinians. I mean, that is all that is all true. Um, and coupled with the fact that Israel blows up Gaza every few years, you can see why Arab states don't want to pay for it. Having said that, that narrative is getting a bit tired and is a bit out of date because here you've got Gaza being the cause, to some degree, the cause belly of a widening war in the Middle East. So, you know, the Houthis, for example, will say, well, you know, we're attacking Western shipping interests because look at what the West is doing to Gaza. Um, so, you know, I was looking at some figures for OPEC oil profits, and the latest figures are available are from 2022. And in 2022, OPEC made $888 billion profit. UNRWA's entire budget is $1.5 billion. That is 0.02% of all of OPEC's oil revenues. So, you know, with 10 seconds of oil revenue, OPEC in a heartbeat could solve UNRWA's financial problems. And the important political point here is that that would take away the political leverage which Israel has and uses, as we've seen in this lamentable recent episode, it takes away the leverage that Israel has over, over the Western um, governments, the Western donors, which it's exerting on UNRWA and the refugees for political purposes, because if it were the case that the donor base had been diversified and more Arab states had been brought in more generously, UNRWA would simply go to the Arabs and say, listen, you know, um, look what um, look what Israelis are doing. Um, we're going to need a bit more cash of this year, but hopefully we'll, you know, that shouldn't take the pressure off the Western donors. And as I say, they're slowly seeing that they've been hoodwinked um, by this Israeli, you know, plot um, well, so I'm not saying sadly, sadly, Chris, in the context of the so-called Abraham Accords, the normalization deals uh, between various Arab regimes, Gulf regimes, and Israel, the United Arab Emirates actually slashed its contribution to UNRWA. So they've actually been moving in the wrong direction, not uniformly, but certainly some of the richest uh, states who have that wherewithal, which which. Unfortunately, they are also under uh, UNRWA's, uh, or sort of under, Isra under Israel's uh, influence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one quick thing I wanted to say earlier, and I'll regret not having said it when we put the phone down. Um, we've talked about these investigations as a pretext for cutting off age. 
What about the idea that if Israeli soldiers are found to have committed war crimes, then Western governments like the Americans and the Brits cut off their support for Israel? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that seem exactly. logical? Or freeze it at least. Right. Freeze it. Yes, suspend it until pending, they have trials pending an investigation. Pending yeah. an investigation. Maybe Israel would sack them in advance of the investigation. That's Who knows? Right. Um, Chris, we just have a few minutes left, but uh, over the last few days, lots of people have been sharing the link to uh, UNRWA's donation page and making donations as individuals or as families in support of the organization's work. D does this make a difference? It does. I mean, one of the important, I mean, let's face it, UNRWA's budget is 1.5 billion. Right. One of the difference, yes. So one of the differences it makes is it forms a, a link, a bond between you know, a kind, a child or a grandmother or someone. And there's an empathy, which I think is really, really important. And I think that is the key value of these smaller donations. But, you know, somebody in Milwaukee giving $10 um, is really not going to, is not going to touch the side, frankly. I don't want to discourage anyone doing it. And I think that donations with the stuff that goes around donations, you know, schools having fundraisers in which they educate um, their students about the plight of, children in Gaza in their schools. I mean, that's all extremely valuable. But basically, nothing should be done to take the pressure off, not that it's very much pressure, but nothing should be done to take the pressure off the Western donors. What they're doing is an utter betrayal. Um, just as these staff members, if indeed it shows, it turns out they've done what they've done, a lot of my colleagues in Gaza, they also, I have to be honest and say, feel betrayed because they've been trying to uphold the values and the standards of neutrality in the most, you know, the darkest days. And they feel that these people have been irresponsible. They're getting, you know, UNRWA's um, support being slashed. It's going to affect more than 30,000 colleagues potentially. So, you know, they feel that they want to, for them, this is their finest hour. This is the biggest political and financial crisis in UNRWA's history, sad to say, and the staff I know in Gaza really want to prove themselves and show that they are humanitarians. As Ali said, 152 have made the ultimate sacrifice in the service of humanity, and they want to carry on doing it. They feel betrayed, but they feel, feel betrayed most of all by the donors, which is why I say, and I've been saying it time and time again, the donors need to come back, and they need to come back soon. It's disproportionate, it's punitive. Frankly, it's immoral, it's a disgrace, and they need to show some good donorship. They need to come back immediately, and I think that Arab states need to come in and really up their game. Their, their oil revenues are massive, and as I say, OPEC could give 0.02 of its oil, oil profits very, very quickly. Or, you know, uh, if, if donor states really wanted to get rid of UNRWA, and Israel really wanted to get rid of UNRWA, they could uh, implement the Palestinian right of return and its legal obligations under yeah. international law. I mean, law. That's, that's, a very, actually, that's the best point of all. The very yeah. best way to get rid of UNRWA is in the context of some kind of peace deal, which sees the refugees right. have their full rights, including the right to self-determination. Bring it on. Let's get right. rid of UNRWA, but let's right. get rid of it according to international law. Absolutely. Chris Gunnis, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for being here and for um, all your valuable insight and analysis, as always. You are the former spokesperson for UNRWA, uh, and we will have you back on as soon as we can. 
Thanks, Chris. Goody, goody. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be with you both and your audience. And I hope you're all well in the darkest of hours. But take heart. This is going to change. It's really going to change. I mean, the UNRWA crisis is really going to change. And I pray, you know, in my heart of hearts that the penny is dropping, that the only way out of this to protect Israelis is by giving the Palestinians their full rights as individuals and all of their collective rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris. Bye-bye. And uh, you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. We uh, are now going to turn to our John Elmer segment. John, there you are. Hello. Uh, you're muted. Hi, uh, there you are. Hi, guys. Good to see you. So, Good to nice see Chris, to see and it was you. great to have Layla on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, there's been a lot of developments in the last week. Uh, give a sense of what, what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I just want to say, like, before I begin again, that um, it's unbelievable what we're watching in the Gaza Strip. Um, the, the appalling crimes of Israel targeting civilians, targeting hospitals, um, like Layla said, targeting entire neighborhoods uh, for no military purpose whatsoever, but just to destroy and kill um, it's appalling to watch and um, we'll break down resistance videos. Um, there's been courageous resistance from the north uh, to the south of the Gaza Strip. Uh, but this war is a, is a war on civilians and we're watching that every single day. Um, the reports out of Gaza over the last uh, 72 hours um, are, are just shocking. Um, the execution of civilians who are bound um, what we're watching uh, under the brutal conditions, environmental conditions right now in the middle of winter, um, people living without tents, um, put stitching uh, UNRWA uh, food aid bags together to create tarps, taking the tarps off the aid trucks um, so that they can sleep under them in the pouring rain, um, while Israel massacres civilians at a rate that hasn't changed at all, killing 200 people a day that we know of. Um, and we know those numbers aren't complete because we know that people are taking dead family members from their homes and burying them outside. We know people are being buried in hospital parking lots. Um, these are shocking and appalling crimes uh, that underpin this entire uh, war that we've seen. Um, and it's not abating at all. Um, but we'll, we'll get into the resistance because while um, the war is targeting civilians uh, uh, above the ground, the resistance appears to be intact and resisting from uh, the far north still um, to the very furthest um, in the south. Um, and just to show a map of the Gaza Strip for people here, uh, we had uh, Israeli soldiers killed in the north. Uh, up north of Gaza City. And uh, today we got reports from Al Jazeera about um, that you reported on at the beginning, Nora, about executions of bound and blindfolded people uh, being uh, buried in mass graves. Um, these, these kind of crimes are not targeting the resistance. In the south, uh, we can see Khan Yunus is, of course, right now the center of the focus of Israel's campaign. Um, and that campaign has been um, 
to push from the west to the east, um, where the safe area that Israel told everybody to go to is right along that western coast of Khan Yunus. And so the army has come around and is effectively using the, the civilians who they told to go to that tiny strip of land with no resources. Um, they're the backdrop of Israel's push uh, eastward. They're pushing eastward toward the Israeli border. Uh, in Khan Yunus. Um, there's been significant resistance. And if we show this next map, um, you can see that the, the the focus of these attacks is has been the hospitals. They're coming down on Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. Um, Israel reinvaded the north uh, in the last few days. And literally, their first target of the reinvasion was Shifa Hospital. Um, that through the incredible bravery uh, of the medical staff and civilian staff um, in Gaza, um, attempting to uh, get that hospital, the biggest in Gaza, up and running again, uh, Israel's first target of their invasion um, was, was Shifa Hospital. So um, again, just to reiterate, appalling crimes that we're watching um, and uh, Hopefully, these cases like Layla's case, uh, hopefully there's some accountability uh, through the ICJ, through the domestic courts. Um, uh, I just hope that these Israelis that are are taking part in this uh, are, are not able to travel anymore, that they fear uh, uh, universal jurisdiction for the rest of their lives, because these crimes are shameful and will go down in history. Um, I just wanted to say that to start off, but let, let's get to the resistance because the resistance has been fierce. Um, there doesn't appear to be any uh, dwindling in the a number of attacks. Israel's forces are not uh, in the cities in the way that they were before. Four months on to the war, they're learning um, and they're staying out of the way and bombing civilians from the air. Um, and so here we see resistance in, in Khan Yunus. And again, all these videos that we're showing are going to be from the last seven days since you last saw us. Uh, this is a, in an Islamic Jihad operation, Saraya al-Quds, uh, their armed wing. Um, and we're watching a joint operation here because the, uh, there's a united front in Gaza, uh, joint operations where all of the resistance factions are participating and communicating in the resistance. And what we're seeing here is uh, a Saraya al-Quds fighter who originally used his RPG-7 to fire a uh, 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 a, a rocket-propelled grenade. Um, but if we watch when the video comes back around the second time, we'll, we'll see him miss with this um, and goes back into the building, which is right beside where the Israelis are. So there's nothing like clearing going on, which you, if you read the newspapers, you'll hear about Israel's clearing operations. Um, there's nothing like clearing going on. We're seeing Palestinian fighters right beside the tanks at every stage. So now he goes inside and he gets uh, Kassam Brigade's weapon, uh, a Yassin 105 that we've talked about on our program, and comes at the same tank. We're watching the same tank be targeted. Uh, he comes at it from, uh, from a different angle with a different weapon uh, from a different armed group. So you can see them participating. You could see um, the, the, the one who shot the first shot is the one who passed him uh, that weapon there. So we're getting this again, the resistance always says that uh, their deeds are not uh, strictly what's captured on camera. If anything, it's the opposite. They don't have enough cameras um, for each of their units, but they embed these uh, 
these these uh, photographers in their units so that they give us a sense of what's happening on the ground. And we're able to cover this war um, largely without the Western press, which is not in Gaza, um, strictly from Palestinian journalists on the ground and the resistance reports themselves, which in terms of media blackouts, um, that, that Israel is attempting by barring journalists from entering the Gaza Strip, um, the Palestinians have undermined that. And that's part of the reason why it's so devastating to watch what, what we've seen happen over the last four months is because the live, uh, we're, we're watching the genocide be live streamed um, and, and people uh, are able to watch what's happening. And all of this footage um, will all be archived and available for people uh, should those war crimes trials um, advance. Um, so this is, again, so that's Soraya Al-Quds using it. That's a joint operation, um, which is interesting to note um, that that's happening. And then if we could just pause it with this one spot here, um, Tamara, if you just want to juxtapose the absolute cowardice of the Israeli army executing people who are bound and blindfolded or raiding a hospital in Janine, dressed like they're holding babies, holding wheelchairs, dressed like doctors so that they can go into a hospital room and execute an already paralyzed fighter who's 18 years old and then tells the media that he's a Hamas commander and that somehow justifies it. And you juxtapose that with what you're looking at right there, a Yassin 105 staring down the barrel of a 75-ton tank um, and, and not flinching. In fact, executing his operation um, effectively. Um, the juxtaposition just couldn't be starker uh, from the absolute cowardice that we're seeing from the Israelis um, targeting civilians and the Palestinian fighters now four months on are still able to mount these kind of operations. Um, John, if I could just ask you a question. Can you tell, maybe you're going to address this, but can you tell, did the videos give us enough information to, to tell us the intensity of the resistance. Can you say that it's at the same level as it has as it was a month ago, two months ago, three months ago? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, Abu Beda tells us once a week uh, a summary of the field reports that come out all day long, every day of these reports, and and they they targeted seventy uh, Israeli vehicles, armored vehicles, um, last week. They carried out fifty seven operations. Um, so the tempo of those operations, um, even though Israel is not. Uh, they're trying to be careful. It appears that Israel believes that a ceasefire is coming in and they're trying to keep their soldiers out of the, uh, as much as possible out of the line of fire while carrying out this genocide from the air uh, predominantly. Um, but no, there's no, we don't see any kind of um, degrading of the resistance capabilities. We're seeing these Yassins that are, are homemade in the Gaza Strip using Israeli uh, bombs that don't explode and taking the explosive material out of the Israeli bombs and, and sending them back at their tanks um, in weapons that are designed, uh, uh, that are built um, in the Gaza Strip by their own hands. Um, and we're seeing four months on that there's no, there's doesn't appear to be any limit um, to that. So there, the preparation, um, the homegrown um, defiance of the civilian population as well, what the civilians are going through, living in their flooded tents right now, starving, 
um, you know, crisis levels. The World Food Program doesn't even know what language to use because they told us um, that it was a dire emergency 10 days ago. Um, that the you know more than eighty percent of the world's catastrophic famine is amongst the civilians in Gaza, but there's no impact that we're seeing on the uh, Palestinian resistance, and the Israelis and American intelligence sources um, are confirming that when they say things like eighty percent of the three hundred and fifty miles of tunnels um, are still intact, and and that's and, and that's by the low number. And, yeah, we, right. They, and, and, the Israelis think there's actually 450 miles yeah. of tunnels. So if you have 80% of 350, um, that's less when you add that more, the 100 more miles that Israel has said um, exists in these tunnels. And Israel, for the record, doesn't even have any idea what's going on in the tunnels because they're not going down in the tunnels and mapping the tunnels. They're destroying nodes of the tunnels. They're destroying shafts of the tunnels. But we know from Israeli uh, prisoners that the tunnels are a spider web. They're not straight lines. You can't just dig one hole in a cemetery, which we've seen 16 different places, 16 different cemeteries in Gaza dug up by the Israelis. And the one cemetery left untouched is the one with uh, World War II uh, Jewish uh, fighters in the cemetery. And they stuck a flag on that cemetery to protect it. Um, and so Israel's carrying out these operations against the tunnels. They're saying they're flooding the tunnels. Now that's become a media story because the IDF uh, showed us one of the pumps that they're putting down in the tunnels. Um, this is not impacting uh, the depth and, uh, uh, and complexity of the tunnel network. One of the prisoners who was released um, described walking for five hours in the tunnel, underground for five hours. She talked about five tiers of the tunnels. The Israeli soldiers aren't doing anything like going down five tiers in these tunnels. That's not happening. What we're seeing is Israeli reports going down 20 meters, um, which in Gaza terms is basically a large basement because we know the tunnels are, in many cases, more than 80 meters deep. Um, the prisoner that was released described the bombing and she said, you don't, the only way you could tell that there was bombing happening, you know, a genocide up on the, on the ground level where they're killing tens of thousands of people. Uh, the only way she could tell underneath is that the, the tunnels swayed, um, which gives you a clue about the engineering of the tunnels, that they're able to do that. Um, and so we're seeing uh, like fake numbers produced by the Israelis. They're clearly hiding their casualties. And they're not degrading the resistance. Of course, resistance fighters have died. Many have died in courageous battles, um, but nothing like the number that the Israelis are saying. But even if we took Israel's number, they're saying 8,000 of a fighting force of the Qassam Brigades. That's 40,000 fighters, not including uh, their police and security services that could become part of the resistance, not including the half a dozen other resistance groups um, that are staffed and fighting in this fight as well. So the, the military objectives for carrying out a genocide have to be extremely high to justify these massacres of civilians. And there's nothing, there's nothing militarily uh, like that at all. Going. John, we, we have just... not seen 8,000 dead fighters and Israel produces snuff films um, every day. And those numbers don't match at all what we've seen 
um, of fighters killed. But we're not going to know. These are things that we can't know because we're not accessing the resistance as this fight is going on. And the Kassam Brigades are, are hiding their casualties too. They're not telling us their casualties right now, but they will because they're proud of their fighters and they'll honor them uh, when this war is over. John, uh, you make an important point there, which is that the Israelis have never hesitated to show their snuff films. So if they had even a fraction of that number of dead Palestinian fighters, they would show them, and they haven't. Uh, and we hope that the resistance fighters are not being killed. They're, they are fighting a right. I say this. Uh, this is this is my belief that. Uh, Palestinians, like anyone else, has a right to have a right to resist. So, uh, but going back to that eighty percent figure of tunnels still being intact, that came from a report in the Wall Street Journal citing unnamed U.S. and Israeli officials saying that they believe that eighty percent of the tunnels are intact. And, and my view is that if they say eighty percent, it's probably ninety-eight percent. But anyway, 80% still is an acknowledgement of failure on their part. Now, the other thing it says in that article in the Washington Post, again, uh, excuse me, in the Wall Street Journal, again, citing these unnamed Israeli and U.S. officials, is that the attempts to flood the tunnels, which we have talked about over the past few months on the live stream, the attempts to flood the tunnels have failed. And they say that they have failed because the tunnels uh, can be shut off. There, there are uh, uh, doors that can, can block them off so that the water can't travel. So as you had predicted, and uh, as we talked about, the engineers who built these tunnels have uh, thought about that. Um, so that's just something I wanted to point out, too, because, uh, again, uh, they seem to... So if they're not going down the tunnels, if the flooding doesn't work, we did see them attempt to use poison gas, and they ended up gassing uh, one of their own prisoners of war who was held in the tunnel, at least according to uh, his mother, uh, then it's game over. And, and they can't bomb the tunnels from the air because the, the bombs can't penetrate that far underground. So they're done, right? Yeah, I mean, Ali, that I said that blood? on the 9th of October on our first ever Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, the, this is, this is uh, an impossible task that the Israeli army is not up for. First of all, the Special Forces unit, the Yahalom unit, that's their anti-tunnel unit, they're combat engineers. They're engineers. They're not combat special forces troops that are going into these tunnels and fighting in this way. Um, and, and so even the pretense that they're, they're pretending like they're doing that it's, it's not happening. Um, and you can read through, uh, I don't recommend it, but you can read through the Israeli uh, defense forces uh, own statements on, on these issues. And the key thing that was in that wall street journal article is that it was almost like the Americans were saying like, what's going on here? Why is this not happening? Why is there not propaganda victories out of this situation? And the Americans said that they're be it's because the Israelis are targeting nodes. 
of the tunnel. They're targeting nodes of a spider web. So imagine in your brain a spider web and targeting one node of that spider web. It's not doing anything. You break, even if you dig one, like they dig, they tried to break up the, the continuity between the north and the south by digging a, a, a tunnel uh, and breaking up the tunnel in the in the middle camps area. Um, that that doesn't work if you have a spider web. So um, the resistance is, I mean, we don't know, but w I, I can assure you that there is not a way to pour with a, a couple of pumps uh, into the, uh, to the tunnel system and flood it. These tunnels are built below the water table. So the engineers uh, in the Gaza Strip who built this uh, incredible network that the Israelis are even themselves are are, are shocked by how good it is. It's so much better than they believed it was. And even their like uh, humanitarian arm of the IDF, Kogat, said like it said it was an incredible achievement um, what has been dug. And and the idea that the Israelis give like saying, well, this money could have been used for something else. Um, to use the money to uh, to use money to dig and build an underground network that makes your resistance genocide proof uh, is an incredible development for the Palestinians. What we're watching is the second Nakba, um, but we're watching it be defended in a way. Uh, that the first Nakba wasn't able to be defended because of the uh, erasure of the Palestinian movements during the Arab uprising, uh, you know, a decade before that. So um, the ability for Palestinians to defend themselves has changed the equation um, forever. And the idea that you can uh, dismantle uh, UNRWA and get rid of the Palestinian uh, question for the Israelis is just ludicrous. And what we're watching is a, a, a fighting force um, that's killed more Israeli soldiers since October the 7th than died in the entire occupation of Lebanon from 1985 to 2000. Um, in combat, in combat uh, so double the number. Um, so just when you think about it in those terms, um, Israel faced its most uh, most comprehensive defeat uh, on October 7th. Um, and that's what they're negotiating right now, um, trying to get their prisoners out. Let's let's do a couple more here. Um, let's do number eight tomorrow. Um, so this is targeting a bulldozer. Um, this is the Kassam Brigades uh, fighting in Khan Yunus, going upstairs to a house that doesn't have a second floor on it. That's the military uh, wing of Hamas, right? That's the military wing of Hamas. And you can see that they've chosen this bulldozer as it loops back around. This bulldozer is reversing. So the fighters that have a position in this building have watched the bulldozer pass without hitting it and then are waiting for it to reverse uh, and, and maybe we can pause it on this go through here tomorrow because you can see, uh, first of all, the position of it, the courage of that. But look at the efficacy. That is too close for any, uh, first of all, the slat armor that you see on the bulldozer. That's the cockpit of the bulldozer right there. So there's two soldiers in there. Um, and that slat armor, you can see, is angled towards the ground. And this is also something that we said on the 9th of October, is that Palestinians are going to use the built-up area to attack Israeli vehicles from above, which is uh, much more, uh, it's a much more vulnerable place to hit these armored vehicles that are all built um, to defend against bombs that are planted in the ground um, or shot from ground level. To, to change the, the angle of the attack um, is something that Palestinians are able to do, both because of their tunnel network, 
um, which allows them to move around the city without um, exposing themselves, um, but also then to climb the building of this um, uh, of this house and and hit from above. And and then there's so many clues. If we could just run it tomorrow, there's so many clues in each of these videos about what's going on. First of all, just the the wanton destruction that destroying a building and only blowing its front walls out that's not serving any military purpose if you're dropping the buildings and then bulldozing the land um, you could see some sort of uh, military objective that you're removing the oversight but to just destroy a house like this some family's home that's now living in a, a under the tarps um, that uh, wrap the aid trucks um, just criminal what we're seeing, but Palestinians are using that landscape um, that Israel created. It's just basically military vandalism. Um, if you just leave the building standing like this, and we know the first day that there's a ceasefire, um, Palestinians are going to go back and they're going to live in that house. They're going to clean up what you see on the stairs there. That's probably their child's bedroom. They're going to clean it up. They're going to hang curtains and they're going to live in a bombed out house um, until the donor countries um, get it together with uh, to, to get the aid in. And Palestinians are going to do that. The barber shop is going to resume cutting hair. Uh, children are going to resume uh, going to school in, um, in ad hoc schools um, because Palestinians resist in, uh, on all levels of their society. The resistance is happening. Um, but just so just to see that a few times to see what that what that destruction um, is purposeless destruction in a military context. The Palestinians are still able to use the tunnel that was in that house or within that neighborhood at some point, and Palestinians are able to fire down um, from over top of them. And uh, also just the, to point out one more time that the, the bulldozer is reversing, that this fighter is moving into position uh, to hit the bulldozer as it's reversing so that he can hit the front of the bulldozer, which we can see in that video uh, that he clearly does. Let's go to number nine tomorrow. This is um, Kassam uh, versus, this is two angles here. So they're giving us cameramen on two spots to hit uh, a brand new Israeli uh, Merkava tank um, that's in so, so again, we're, we're seeing coordination between the fighters. This isn't ragtag uh, forces because they've been uh, dismantled in the way that Israel says. These videos look exactly the same as the videos from three months ago. The fighters have the same communication, um, the same skill. Um, they're hitting with these shots. Um, and again, you're seeing from above. So they're, they're using the, the, uh, the terrain um, that Israel has created to attack the Israelis. And here's a drone. Um, I, I haven't done the drones yet, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what's going on with these drones. But it appears that they're landing these Israeli drones. Look at that drone. It's in perfect condition. So, and this is uh, part of a number of these drones that we've seen that I'll bring to you on a, on a future show uh, once we figure out what's going on, but they're not being shot out of the air. Maybe it they're hacked, these drones hacked are being, into? They're being, it, it appears they're I mean, being some, some of them a bit. Some of them look like they're being shot out. Of the Some area. of them are shot down. Yeah. So Kassam's last uh, field report, they said that they've seized eight of these drones and shot down two of them. So they're using language seized, hijacked, 
Um, so it's not it's not entirely clear what's what's happening, but um, it appears that they're able to get at these miniature drones. Um, and we've seen uh, Soraya Al Quds um, you take the camera out and get the data, and then use the data from the Israeli drones. Uh, to target Israeli positions, which is something that uh, we haven't seen drone footage from Gaza in quite some time because Israel just massacres any journalist uh, that's using this tool. So uh, uh, something for a future show and maybe uh, uh, when we... This war, this genocide is so comprehensive that it requires us to be uh, technology experts, infrastructure experts, aid experts. Uh, the technology part is, uh, I'm, I'm not totally clear, but we know that the Iranians have GPS spoofed uh, American drones. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising if the Palestinians had that capability. And we know that the Palestinians know how to target because on October 7th, um, the blinding operation um, to, to take out Israel's network connectivity was a critical part uh, of that operation. And so, uh, again, we don't have access to the fighters. We're trying to piece this stuff together with our experience and knowledge uh, and bring it to you guys live in this one week uh, in which it happens. Um, after the war, I'm sure we'll be able to talk um, to the fighters about uh, exactly what they're doing because this resistance has been um, uh, very skillful uh, on all levels that we're seeing. Let's do... Um, so also just one more thing about that, the previous videos. When you're firing between buildings in an urban area, um, the Israeli armored vehicles countermeasures, the trophy uh, active protection system, the radar can't pick up the incoming round. So those rounds are hitting uh, on tank crews that are six. They're hitting on the turrets of those tanks where the, where the commander and the driver are in. Um, but we're not seeing that matching uh, Israeli casualty figures um, that we'll talk later about Lebanon as well the Israel and the West Bank. Israelis are hiding their casualties um, clearly because they don't match what we're seeing in these videos. Um, let's go to the next one tomorrow. We, um... Okay, so so this is a training video from the Kassam Brigades that I wanted to show you because I remember you talking about this earlier too, Ali, that the we don't see the damage to the tanks because the fighters are peeling away immediately to get out of the way um, because they're skilled fighters who are trying to avoid uh, the artificial intelligence detecting systems on these vehicles that can track where you shot the round from, even if the tank driver has no idea. Um, so this was published before the ground invasion. Um, this is the Kassam Brigade's training for the October 7th mission, where they captured, you can see these are each of the different types of Israeli vehicles, um, where they capture the soldiers um, alive, bring them out of the tanks, which looks like very much like the tank that we saw on uh, October 7th being. So this is a training video. So this, this is, is a training video of yeah. the Kassam Brigades that they released before the ground war. Um, showing how they came from a tunnel. What we're watching right now is soldiers that were captured. That guy went in head first to film. So uh, congrats to that guy for uh, for the training video because he he got the face first down the tunnel. Um, but that's what uh, they're showing us. So here, watch watch closely here. If we can watch watch these Yassin archers here. Watch them fire and turn. Do you see how they turn away immediately after firing? They're turning away, even in a training video. So it's clearly something that they're trained to do. 
even though the objective in this training video is to capture the soldiers, we see the first group of Yassin fighters, they're firing and peeling off, even though the objective is to pursue the tank. Um, so this, th wh why we're seeing them pull away right away is trained fighters. It's not somebody that's new to this weapon, um, which by the way, if a guerrilla war were to break out in the Gaza Strip, um, this is a kind of weapon that people can use. So even if the fighters were degraded in some way, there's still the capacity to use these weapons within the Gaza Strip. But I just wanted to show you this training video um, because you can watch, and if you watch closely at the shooters, they don't linger, but watch them turn away as soon as they fire. They peel away, even though there's no need in this training video, and that the objective is to actually pursue the tank. So they peel off uh, shoulders. Uh, they peel off on uh, on the uh, on the training. That's part of the way that these fighters have been taught to use uh, this weapon. So I just wanted to show you that. And then, um, Tamara, can we show John Kirby? So that that tank capturing those people, uh, those those were Palestinians in a training video. But we saw on October seventh, um, the the uh, Israeli soldiers captured out of a tank that was on the border with Gaza. That was in Nahal Oz, which is where um, the uh, the Israelis uh, are patrolling the Gaza ghetto. Um, one of those soldiers was an American born in, uh, and raised in Brooklyn, and his father gave John Kirby, the White House national security spokesperson, dog tags, Israeli dog tags that say, bring home the kidnapped Israelis um, from that tank gunner's uh, father. So, And John Kirby wears these dog tags on the podium while talking about the genocide in Gaza. Um, just I, I know we know that the Israelis and the, Amer the Americans give the Israelis billions of dollars of materiel, um, but they also do these kind of things that are just really astonishing, that they're wearing the dog tags of a soldier who was captured inside of his tank with along with four of his tank uh, crewmates. Uh, on they, they seem 7th. to care more about the Israeli soldiers than they do about the American soldiers who are now being killed uh, for Israel. Yeah, well, the, the Israelis don't care about them either. How many of them have they killed during this bombing raid? The the captives that came out of detention uh, in Gaza said that their biggest fear was the Israelis. It wasn't uh, uh, Hamas who took care of them. Yahya Sinwar came and visited them and asked them if they were okay. Um, and when they were originally captured, for the record, they were told, uh, the, 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 the ladies that were, uh, were freed in the last round, when they came into the tunnels in Gaza on October 7th, Yahya Sinwar came and visited them on the first day and said they were going to go home today or tomorrow. The Palestinians expected the Israelis to exchange the civilians uh, for their civilians in prison on the first day. Um, and she talks about on this interview on Israeli television how she realized that after the second and the third day that Israel wasn't going to do that, that they were just going to uh, ignore them. So that, that's an important uh, thing to point out. And so we got a couple more here. Let, let's go to um, number 12, Tamara. So these are fighters, again, using a, a building to fire at a tank uh, as it passes by. 
Um, we're not seeing any uh, shortage of this kind of activity. These videos uh, are constant. That's a hit because, again, the active protection system can't be used. And here we're going to see a tank drive by. Um, and notice on its side skirt, um, we're going to see on its side skirt uh, an up-armored addition that the Israelis have made to these tanks. Um, we've seen them with uh, anti-magnetic stripping. Um, to try to prevent the hand-delivered uh, bombs that we've showed on this show before. If people haven't uh, seen that, we've done uh, segments on that before where Palestinians literally attach the explosive to the Israeli tanks. So we're seeing here uh, Israeli uh, armored uh, upgrades that are based on the ferocity of the resistance in the Gaza Strip. I just wanted to show that. We haven't uh, seen that in particular, but we know that the Israelis are using the anti-magnetic stripping uh, as well. So we could just play that one out. And then number 13 is uh, um, a video that, so that that's a hit on that tank. Um, that tank's going to have to at least be immobilized um, by that. So presuming there's going to have to be some sort of uh, rescue operation for what's going on in that tank, because there's no defensive measure um, from that close proximity. Um, so we could just do number 13 here tomorrow. And this is one. So this is a cameraman and a shooter. And we're watching them here across the street. This is the Kassam Brigades as well. The cameraman is with him. The cameraman that we've seen is a spotter. And look at him here. He runs over to this burning car that the Israelis have blown up. And look at, they're using the cars burning as cover, both from drones and from that armored personnel carrier that's right there that looks like a command vehicle uh, based on the, the top of it there. John, are these Qassam fighters dressing up for these videos? Because, I mean, this is not the first time we've seen uh, a fighter looking rather chic. This, this people have, I, I mentioned that because people have been commenting about it a lot online. <laughs> if, he, if they did it on purpose? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this the, and the ease with which he fires. Maybe we could pause it on this one when we go by. Yeah, like the, the, the ease and, and, and skill with which he's firing that. Um, looking, I mean, it's winter right now, so it might yeah. be just the jacket that he has access to. But yeah, he looks, uh, he, he, the, he's a legend. This guy's a legend. So I'm sure we're going to hear more uh, about him. Um, but the cameraman gets this shot. He's relaxed while firing, in part because he's using the car as cover. Um, he carries out his execution with acumen um, and then retreats back to safety, which the Kassam Brigades in their field reports note that their that their fighters uh, are able to return um, safely from from these attacks hmm. we have one more no this is the last one but okay. i want to switch over to uh the other fronts that are happening just really quickly uh in in lebanon and the west bank um and then ali will talk about the uh attack uh, by the iraqi resistance on the uh American base in Jordan. Um, but tomorrow, if we could go to number one. Um, so Hezbollah showed us this week uh, a capability that we've been waiting to see. The Israelis said that it was used um, previously, but this is the first that we've seen it on video. And what we're seeing here is a top attack uh, anti-tank missile that the Iranians have created by reverse engineering uh, a spike anti-tank missile system that was captured during the July war in 2006. And the Israelis immediately after it was captured, uh, Israeli state television 
uh, talked about that the fact that it was captured. And you can see the weapon system in the Hezbollah Museum uh, in the south. Um, so this is a, t- a top attack anti-tank missile, which allows um, it to non-line of sight, which means that you can fire the weapon, which we're seeing here. Um, and then this is the original shot. And you can watch here as the missiles headed towards uh, this hilltop, because that's where the fighter aimed it. Somebody separate from the fighter is able to take over the direction of this of this munition and redirect it from a safe third place to strike the target from above, which is something that we're watching here with Hezbollah knocking out Israeli surveillance equipment, um, which Israel uses to to use all of its weapons um, are based on network connectivity. So blowing up these these radar domes and the way that we're seeing here is part of the warfare, part of the 750 operations in the north. Um, we can see that being blown up. And so when the first video that we showed was 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 shown, the Israel, the IDF spokesperson, uh, Arabic spokesperson said um, that this what we're watching actually didn't happen, even though when we're if we could just when we get in close here tomorrow, if we can pause, you can see on this base previous damage from Hezbollah strikes of the 750 that they've carried out uh, in the last 115 days of this war. Um, You can see the dome to the left of the triangle of the green arrows there. You can see the destruction in that radar dome to the left. Um, So this weapon is something that can be fired from safety and then redirected from a third place, which allows the fighters um, a, a, a modicum of safety, but allows the weapon to be used in a way that hasn't been uh, used against Israel uh, before. And these weapons are, we're watching them hit radar domes, but they could be used against tanks um, and can evade the active protection systems of the tanks. So it's a significant upgrade that we're seeing here and something that if there were to be a war, Uh, in the north, which Israel uh, seems to be expecting. They have completely cleared out the north and the south, but they've completely cleared out the north. And for the first time in Israel's history, the buffer zones are now inside Israeli territory. The Gaza buffer zone is the Gaza envelope that has been uh, depopulated, and the north uh, as well, that there's buffer zones that are now not inside Lebanon and inside Gaza. They're inside Israel, which is a strategic bind for the Israelis. Um, And then maybe tomorrow we can show this just uh, Hezbollah released uh, the second video, this one we're watching right here, because the Israelis said that the first one didn't happen. So they showed this one, which is much more clear example. Um, But if you look at the Almas anti-tank weapon that the Iranians uh, released in the last, uh, it's only a couple years old, but it's the product, it's the product of Iranian uh, design, but also uh, crucially that it was reverse engineered from a captured Israeli weapon. Um, that the resistance then puts uh, to to effect. So if we could do number three tomorrow, um, shortly after that, Hezbollah released a video uh, with Nasrallah's voiceover from his last speech that we talked about, about Israel covering up their casualties, not admitting their soldiers uh, are being killed in the north. Um, so Hezbollah released this video um, which which might go along with the the ceasefire talks that are happening. It, it seems as though both fighting force, all three fighting forces, uh, seem to believe that a ceasefire uh, is at least a possibility because Hezbollah tipped this weapon um, and are showing these videos uh, at a time that the um, 
Israeli intelligence, uh, Egyptian intelligence, American intelligence agencies are meeting in Paris to try to come up with some sort of ceasefire agreement. Um, but we're seeing more soldiers here targeted than the Israelis have admitted to uh, casualties in the north. And the voiceover that we've taken out of this video is Nasrallah saying that the Israelis are lying uh, about their casualties, are hiding their casualties for morale uh, in their forces. So that's one of the fronts, 750 attacks from Lebanon. We know the Yemen front has been 250 attacks, um, uh, 200 drone attacks, uh, and 50 ballistic and cruise missile attacks. Uh, but we also have resistance um, in the West Bank um, that we've seen. So this is a, a shot of the roundabout outside of the Janine refugee camp with an Israeli vehicle. Again, no casualties reported by the Israelis. Uh, and the Israel, this is in the, in the outer edge of the Janine refugee camp, which has been one of the places of, uh, fierce resistance in the North of the West bank. Uh, you know, last year, 2013, more than 2000 resistance operations, um, in, in the West bank. If this was any other time, um, we would be talking about the third intifada in, in the West Bank. There's sites of armed struggle last yesterday in 10 spots. Um, and then we go to the next video tomorrow is from Talkaram, where there's been uh, fierce resistance as well. And in the Nur Shams um, camp, where there's only 7,000 uh, Palestinians living in densely populated area, the Israelis invaded earlier um, this month with 1,000 soldiers for a population of 7,000 um, with fighters who have been besieged for two decades uh, inside of their ghettos in the West Bank. So that that's a shot from Talkaram. Um, just wanted to show, I, I wanted to get a bit of uh, the West Bank resistance in, into that, uh, into these videos because um, Israel has multiple fronts of this war that are happening right now. The resistance is fierce and heroic um, in, in Gaza, but it's happening all over. If this was normal times, we'd be saying there was a war in the north and we'd be saying um, that there was an intifada uh, in the West Bank. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that, John. Um, and uh, I did want to ask a little bit about um, uh, if, if you and Ali could talk about the uh, discussions that are happening uh, around a, a possible ceasefire. While um, you were showing those videos, John, and analyzing, uh, I got a text from our good friend, Dr. Mads Gilbert, who said that the forecast for the coming weekend is extremely worrying for Gaza, five to seven degrees Celsius at night, uh, gale force winds, rain, uh, extreme risk of accidental man-made hypothermia, hitting children, diseased and frail people, weakening immune systems, aggravating the uh, the, the famine that that Israel is causing. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, it can't come soon enough. But it, but are the discussions um, worth worth it? Uh, is is anything you know promising? Uh, it's, it, it does sound like it. I don't want to speculate on these kind of back channel things, but it does sound like it. The meetings that are happening between Egyptian intelligence, um, Shabak, Mossad, um, the CIA, um, and the prime minister of Qatar appear to be moving. Um, they were supposed to end last week and they, all those intelligence chiefs, um, remained in place to try to to, to negotiate the ceasefire yeah. um i mean one of the main sticking points appears to be that the uh Cassandra brigades have been clear from the beginning um that the that the 
there wasn't going to be a series of pauses, which has been something that Israel's normal wars uh, carry out these series of pauses that, that there was not going to be that until there was a ceasefire, which is makes perfect sense when your population is living through the conditions that you just described. Um, the Palestinians are living through awful, horrific conditions. Um, pausing a war for two weeks um, so that you can then resume massacring people um, isn't something that the resistance is putting up as the uh, as their first position that they can do a staged release. Um, but we do know that there are more um, captives to be released. Um, high level ones too. I mean, well, yeah. yes, there's high level ones that, but there's also the there's the the husbands of some of the the ladies that were released that the Palestinians want the elderly prisoners in Palestinian jail in Israeli jails, the yeah. Palestinians in Israeli jails to be released, um, and Israel uh, rejected that in the first round. Um, they're just letting their people, uh, you know, they're 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 not prioritizing obviously these the 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 captives and that's one thing that one of the uh captives who was released said she said she didn't recognize this country because normally israel cared uh you know disproportionately about their soldiers and were willing to trade them for a thousand um palestinian fighters and um, that doesn't appear to be the case now we're living in the mass hannibal era right. um, so i i think that the, the the sticking point seems to be on the way that the release unfolds the americans are trying to get it in a staged um, release and it's not clear um, i mean i think it takes a couple of days to get the message to gaza and to get it back um, the the outside leadership of hamas is um, are effectively diplomats at this stage of the game they're not um, the decision makers so uh, we'll have to see but it seems the way that the that hezbollah it, it showing this new weapon uh, the way that the intelligence chiefs are meeting uh, continuing to meet at, past the deadline uh, in in Paris, that 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 possibly we're moving towards uh, a, a some sort of agreement. Well, it's it's clear that uh, the U.S. and Israel want an agreement, but they want it on their terms. They want right. to achieve our, our, at the negotiating table what they haven't achieved on the ground. And I think it's very difficult to see how the resistance could accept anything less than their red line of a permanent ceasefire, among other things, after all this sacrifice that Palestinians have made. So we are in the realm of speculation. I think it's clear that the U.S. has realized that Israel uh, is a dog that can't hunt. Is that the phrase? Um, And so they want a way out that preserves their, uh, uh, that saves face. Uh, and the resistance is saying, you know, the battlefield conditions is what dictates the terms, and on the battlefield, Israel is losing. Again, we always stress that um, murdering uh, women and children and men uh, and destroying schools and buildings and universities and hospitals is not winning. Um, it's it's actually a sign of losing. So we don't know. Uh, we, we, we hope for the sake of everyone in Gaza, that there will be a ceasefire, but one that makes sure they will never face this uh, genocidal violence again. And that seems to be the bottom uh, line there. Yeah, I agree. Um, Do you want to do PowerPoint 22? Yeah, let's talk quickly about about what happened in Jordan. uh, When was it? On... uh, 
Um, I'm actually, I'm actually, Sunday? right. No, I don't know um, any days either, but uh, the uh, American base, um, Tower 22 on the Jordanian, Syrian, Iraq border yeah, was hit before by we get. It was hit by a drone and three U.S. Uh, soldiers were killed and some two dozen were injured. And Tamara, can you just put up the uh, story I sent you, which shows the photos and names of the soldiers? Um, and it's just very striking to me that all three of these soldiers are black. And so, you know, w once again, we see a pattern repeating of... Uh, people in the United States. We know I, I don't know much about these individuals personally, so I don't want to generalize, but we do know that it is a pattern. I certainly see it in Chicago that uh, military recruitment targets uh, minority uh, communities, black, Latino, uh, and uh, other communities where Americans can only get, you know, instead of the kind of social rights they should have as rights, uh, college education and uh, various other benefits. You Health can, yeah. yeah, you can only get those through, uh, you know, so-called GI Bill benefits, where you have to join the army. So this is a route for many people to get those benefits, and it, it's historically been true that the people most marginalized within the United States end up as the cannon fodder of empire. And I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, these young people should not have been on a, a border outpost uh, of Jordan um, and just across the border from Syria where the United States maintains an illegal occupation. It's a topic for another day, but I wonder why Syria doesn't go to the International Court of Justice and take the United States to the International Court of Justice over its uh, illegal occupation of Syria. But this attack, this drone attack, we know, hit um, a border outpost called Tower 22, which is inside the uh, inside Jordanian territory. And I think we can actually look at the Google map of this location. And so you see there's Jordan in the middle of the map, and that red point up in the northeast corner of Jordan shows where the drone attack took place at a place called Rukban. And if we zoom way in, uh, we can see that this little outpost, it's sort of a military base. It's actually not that little if you kind of look at, uh, look at it. I wonder how long it would take to walk across. It's not huge, but maybe it's like the size of a college campus. And what's notable about this is that we can see, at least according, John and I talked about this earlier, it appears that those aircraft on the left, we can zoom in even further, uh, appear to be AH-64 Apache uh, combat helicopters. So those are clearly American aircraft there. Um, and if we zoom back out, uh, we can see how close it is to the Syrian border, uh, but it is within Jordan. And across the border in Syria, if you zoom out again, Tamara, uh, uh, yeah, zoom out, uh, there is, uh, I, I don't know if we're necessarily going to see it, but there is the Al-Tanif uh, US base, occupation base in Syria. I don't know if it shows on the, on the Google map, but it's not far from there. 
Now, I just want to mention, I, I'm going to ask you a question about this, John, but um, the, the Jordan, the, all of this, the initial response from the Jordanian government when news of this attack broke was to try to deny that this took place in Jordan. And then they had to sort of dial back that statement when the United States government made clear that this was in Jordan. And then the Jordanians issued this bizarre statement where they said that the attack took place um, at an advanced position near the border and that no Jordanians were injured in the attack. So they sort of acknowledged, finally had to acknowledge it was in Jordan. But why would they deny it? The reason is that the Jordanian government is very coy about what appears to be the major U.S. military presence in Jordan, which is, of course, deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular because for, for all sorts of reasons, but in the current context, particularly because the United States is seen correctly as enabling and assisting the genocide of the Palestinian people. And just as a reminder, uh, Tamara, if we zoom out and go to uh, the, um, let's go to the Muafaq Salti Air Base uh, and, and just take a look. And this gives us a sense of the scale. Uh, just hold it there for a second. Actually, zoom out just so people can see where this is in Jordan. So this is, uh, this is sort of, uh, there's Amman, the capital, and then this is sort of to the east. It's sort of right in the middle of Jordan, but it's the east near uh, Azra. And if we zoom back in now, this is a major Jordanian Air Force base that the Americans have essentially taken over. Uh, they've been operating in it for years, but this was further formalized in the January 2021 Defense Cooperation Agreement between uh, the United States and Jordan. And that agreement, the text of which is public, um, basically gives the United States uh, free reign for its forces to operate pretty much in any part of Jordan. Uh, and, and they do. And uh, in 2018, Congress uh, appropriated $140 million for the expansion and improvement of this uh, uh, airbase in Jordan for American use. And if we zoom in, Tamara, we can see some of the aircraft that at least were on the ground at the time this Google image was taken. And if we zoom way in, we can see what appear to be from their silhouette F-35 fighter jets, which are again uh, advanced United States warplanes and not something that the Jordanian Air Force uh, possesses. And then, Tamara, if you just click on the story that uh, uh, you and I wrote back in October, just to show people, uh, at the beginning, this story is dated 29th of October, but uh, just after October 7th, the United States rushed uh, additional forces to Jordan, a couple of extra squadrons of fighter jets, and Patriot missile uh, batteries uh, as part of their regional buildup in essentially in defense of Israel. So this is just to provide some context about what's going on in Jordan. And uh, it's something that's deeply, deeply unpopular with the people and which the government doesn't like 
uh, people to talk about very much because it's it's uh, because it's so unpopular. But that is uh, that that just provides some context for what happened. But John, just uh, you know, in in uh, before we go out, what can you tell us about this attack? who is behind it, the capabilities, and what it may portend. And, of course, I'm talking about that attack that killed the three U.S. Uh, soldiers. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, it was a drone attack that the uh, Americans had turned off their air defenses. Uh, that's what they're claiming, that they had turned off their air defenses because they believed that the drone was an American drone. Um, and these air defenses um, are already complicated for the Americans for the exact reason that you just uh, articulated, because there's a lot of American assets around and they're uh, ideally not going to down their own planes and their own drones using their own surface to air missiles in this kind of like friendly fire vicious circle that's happening um and so it's it appears that one got through and i guess that's sort of what we've been waiting for because there's been more than 180 attacks on american troops in syria and iraq by the iraqi resistance um and so it was just a matter of time before one gets through. And then, of course, with the logic of, of empire, the second that that happened, every single news reporter that asked about uh, that asked Biden was, was what, what's Biden's response going to be? How many mil, you know, how many people is he going to kill? Uh, what kind of attack is it going to be as if that, that there's the supposition that there that this must be responded to? Um, as if these aren't attacks that are targeting American uh, assets that are protecting Israel's genocide, um, which is what's happening with the Houthis too. There's no, uh, with Ansar Allah, there's no um, diplomatic solution, as Ansar Allah has uh, articulately said, there's no diplomatic solution um, to the blockade that they're imposing on American and British warships, that the, the, the solution isn't diplomatic. It's to allow aid into the Gaza Strip to the people that we've been talking about, um, to Layla's family, um, to people that are suffering uh, right now under this brutal uh, Israeli attack. That's, that's the solution. Um, the Iraqi resistance is a bit more complicated because the Americans are in Iraq uh, ostensibly under uh, an agreement with the Iraqi government, which the Iraqi government is trying to uh, to annul and get them out. So the Iraqi resistance said yesterday that they were going to halt attacks uh, pending the outcome of these discussions on a political level in their own country and presumably the ceasefire uh, talks that are happening. Uh, but this is just one uh, of 180 attacks on American assets in the region that are have no justification for being there. I mean, we could have a whole show about Jordan, right? Like I, I covered Jordan uh, when I, because Jordan was the uh, Jordanian International Police Training Center was the training center for Keith Dayton, the American security coordinator whose job it was was to train Palestinians um, to attack Hamas uh, in the West Bank. And the reason that they had to train them in Jordan is because they were illegitimate in their own communities. So they couldn't train them in their own communities. They had to train them in Jordan. Of course, Jordan trained Iraqi security forces that were uh, put into that insurgency, um, you know, brutal casualty rates uh, during that insurgency trained in Jordan. So Jordan's been a U.S., uh, essentially a U.S. offshore base. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing. And to target it um, by forces in the region would appear, I think, to most of the world, a perfectly legitimate target. All right. Well, we have obviously a lot more to cover. Um, and uh, 
yeah, an extraordinary amount of information. Thank you so much, as always, John. Uh, and uh, I want to bring Asa on. Asa, where's Asa? Uh, Asa, yeah, there you are. Hi. Um, we got an extraordinary number of comments, um, which uh, we're we're all very grateful uh, for our listeners and viewers tuning in and and offering solidarity and support to our guests and asking good questions. Uh, Asa, yeah, tell us about some of the comments. Yeah, thanks, Nora. Uh, well, um, as always, we had viewers today from all over the world. Um, so I'm just going to flash some of those up on the screen. I, I've saved loads of comments today. We had a particularly active chat. So uh, thank you every, to everybody who tuned in today to watch the show. We appreciate it. Um, and we had... We had one viewer here who thanked you in particular, Laura, for reading the news uh, at the top of the show uh, and then mindful of the toll that it takes on you, on, on all of us. Um, all of us who, yeah. yeah, all of our writers and, and editors, our colleagues uh, who are reporting these facts, yeah. Yeah, and we had, um, of course, a lot of supporters. People were really moved by Leila Al-Haddad earlier on in the show and sending their support to her um, really um, emotional um, contribution to the show when she was talking about the toll that it takes on her and, and uh, the, you know, the plight of her family in the Gaza Strip and trying to stay, you know, as, as somebody with, with family in, in Gaza, trying to stay in touch with them. So, you know, there was an outpouring of support in the comments um, for Layla earlier on. Um, actually, I've saved far too much of it. I can't possibly uh, go through it all, but it, it's great. People were really, as well, appreciative of um, Ali's segment earlier on uh, about the debunked mass rape claims a story we have to, we're going to have to keep returning to. Um, I think. Um, so people were appreciative of that. People were um, also um, grateful for Chris Gunnis's appearance as well and his, his contribution to the show earlier on. Um, we also, and finally as well, um, <laughs> people, people are very uh, happy um, to see. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the resistance hour, I guess we could call it. Um, so thank you to everybody. Thank you for all your support um, in the comments. We we do try and read as much as it of it as possible. Um, and um, thank you for all your contributions in the chat. Um, one final thing. We I mean I can't. You know this is just a commenter, but this, I, this was an interesting. Comment. You know we can't vouch for the reliability of this, but. You know, it, this was uh, what one of our viewers uh, said on the issue of the, the US service personnel uh, killed in uh, in Jordan. So, you know, this is an interesting comment here that by a viewer saying that um, my cousin was married to one of the soldiers that was killed and her husband wasn't even allowed to tell her where he was stationed at. And Ali was correct that they target um, black communities for recruitment. So, um, Thank you to Veronica there for that contribution. 
Oh, um, well, I do also uh, especially want to thank uh, Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, as usual, our extraordinary producer and director, uh, all of our colleagues at the Electronic Intifada, um, and we're you know trying to lure them onto the uh, live stream um, so that you can uh, you know so that we can have a conversation with them uh, with our audience as well, um, but. Uh, yeah, so stay tuned for that. And uh, of course, go over to our website, electronicintifada.net. You can read all of our reports. We're publishing a gargantuan amount of content these days, of course. Um, and, and, uh, and our writers in Gaza are still yeah, writing. They're still writing they and they're still, still writing. Yeah. And uh, it's so important to hear their voices. Remember what Leila said, her family saying right at the right at the beginning of this show her family is saying don't stop talking about gaza yeah. one way to keep talking about gaza if we just i don't know if we can scroll down or if that's a fixed uh, image but you can see right there on the front page i i don't i i with my eyesight i gotta zoom in but you see that uh, for example that uh, one of those top stories there um Actually, three of the four stories there that you see in the center are by writers in Gaza, by Khulud Sleiman and uh, Salma Yassin, uh, by um, Rueda Amer, and the last one is covered by the comment. I don't see the name. Yes, and those, those writers, those are our colleagues in Gaza right now, writing from Gaza. So one of the ways we can keep talking about Gaza is by reading and sharing. And there, Khaled al-Hissi, who just, uh, who recently left Gaza. Uh, in fact, most of these stories here are by our colleagues in Gaza. So read them, share them, send them to friends and family, and keep their voices front and center. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we will, uh, of course, have another live stream as soon as we can. Subscribe to our mailing list over at the Electronic Intifada uh, in order to get updates about our next live stream. You can also subscribe on our YouTube channel to get notified. Uh, John, Ali, Asa, Tamara, everyone at EI, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.